what's up everybody? Welcome to another episode of Downtime with Downstar, episode 201. And today we are here with Ara Arslanian. Ara, how are you doing, man? I'm doing fine. How are you, Frank? I'm great, brother. Hey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, this is this is a pleasure. It's an honor. Um, the community and uh, being part of the community, I love being part of it and uh, talking about the old days and then... Uh, and and mesmerized by the current racers, the current, what I call the breed of speed, uh, the breed of speed. Yeah. And, and the speed, uh, the the numbers, the horsepower levels, and the ET levels is just like mind-boggling. Yeah. They crushed whoever did. I love it, man. So, um, OG racer from the East Coast, we've actually been getting a lot of requests for you on Downtime with Downstar to have you on. Um, like I told you before, we've had a lot of the West Coast OGs on here telling their stories, telling... Uh, painting the picture of how the community started and, and who were the fast guys and what what was what. So I'm pretty familiar with that. But when it comes to the East Coast, uh, not so much, man. And um, that this is this is definitely one of my goals is to, to get that story painted as well because we have a, a large following in the East Coast. And I want to show you guys some love, man. And I want to I educate myself as well. So um, if you can't... Really? If you can, just give us a, a, a brief breakdown of uh, who you are and what you do, please. Sure, no problem. Um, well, you know, as, as uh, some of the followers would know, I, I was, uh, they know me as an import racer, but I started out with uh, road racing, cart racing, road racing, uh, you know, a little bit of BMX stuff and uh, moped racing when I was in you know, between that age and then car racing again. And then uh, in the United States got into street racing. And then that went to racetrack and uh, the import scene exploded. And we happened to have been right there at the, at when it exploded and, uh, um, and formed a family, you know, yeah. East coast racers and the West coast racers, we all formed a family. It may have, it may have looked like uh, we were rivals on the racetrack and we were, but I tell you, this, you know, the, the the camaraderie and the family that we we built before qualifying began, and then after racing was over on Sunday, and even in between, everybody helping each other out is uh, is a is um is what I remember the most. But um, that's what I did, you know. So we we started racing in the '90s in the import in the in the late '90s. Um, I went out to I went to a English Town Raceway Park on a dare. Because I used to make fun of drag racers. As a road racer, I used to make fun of drag racers. I made fun of drag racers my entire life. Because I was like, dude, all you do is press on the gas and you go straight. There's no left. There's no right. There's no breaking point. There's nothing. You just go straight. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. So one day on a dare, I took my Supra, which was set up as a road race car, and I went to English Town. I almost hit the wall <laughs> going 15 seconds, it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and I think, I don't remember the exact time, but it was definitely in the 15 seconds. And I pulled up, now I've never been on a, on a drag strip. I pulled up on the left lane, I'll never forget. I pulled up on the left lane, and now I have road racing slicks on the car. Not drag racing slicks, yeah. slicks, road racing slicks. You know, the, the whole setup was a road racing car. And to my right was a Camaro. And he sits there and starts burning a tire. I look up, I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> What is this? You know, and I just pull up. I go through the water box. Now my tires are all wet, right? I go through the water box. I'm 
somebody told me how to line up, you know, how to stage and all that. So I did best I can. I staged it uh, very well. The light goes down and I and I take off. I take off. All of a sudden, the car's going left, going to the right. I'm like trying to stay away from the wall. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? So I finally coasted down the track. I'm like, I came back around and my, uh, at the time she was my fiance, and a friend of mine. They said, you look like a ghost. I'm like, oh, I, I got to go back. There's no way I'm leaving this track like that. I got to redeem myself. <laughs> so I went back again on the left lane. This time I kind of. I didn't still didn't do a burnout because I, w- I wouldn't know how to do a burnout in the first place. Yeah. Uh, I took it nice and easy. Nothing. I closed it to maybe 15 seconds, but it was straight. I came back as I did it. Yeah. <laughs> it's an accomplishment. And that's how I got hooked on drag racing. I'm like, holy shit, this thing is way harder than it, I thought. Yeah. You know, and little by little, I started going on testing two days on Wednesdays at E-Town. You know, you pay 10 bucks and you go in. And then uh, we had like Street Wars, uh, whatever it was at the time was called, uh, Drag Wars at E-Town mm-hmm. on a Friday night. And I got into it, you know, 14 seconds, then 13 seconds, then 11 seconds. Then you start working with a mortar and all that stuff. And then uh, 10 seconds, 9 seconds. So we were the first unibody, six, I, I raced a manual. So the Super Bowl was a manual six-speed. Um, and uh, we were the first to break into the nines. We did it in Las Vegas in 2000, end of 2000, doing a Naira event. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 2001, we campaigned the Supra again throughout Naira, IDRC, and uh, anything that we had in English Town, and also another racetrack by us called Atco. Mm-hmm. And then we built the uh, tube chassis cars, the Solaris, again with the 2JZ motor. And uh, that was, uh, we unveiled them in early 2000 beginning of the 2000 season, um, the cars, you know, I was very lucky. We had a very, very strong team. So I, I always said it then, I'll say it again now. They made me look way better than I was. They put a car together for me every single time. The, the car was extremely consistent. We made awesome power. If anything, we made more power than the racetracks could handle because in those days, Raceways, uh, English, uh, the tracks, they really didn't take imports seriously. Mm-hmm. You know? And there was different prepping for us than there were for the muscle cars. Hmm. So when we arrived, the prepping wasn't there. We, we struggled. A lot of time we would go to racetracks and they were not prepped well. So what the guys had to do on the team was manage the power. Yeah. You know, bring down the power, tame the car down. Tame, because turbos, all you got to do is turn the boost up. And every, every week or every two weeks, we had more technology somehow we figured out how to add another 50 horsepower to the car by the end of the year we're making 300 more horsepower but the racetracks were no better racetracks were still not prepped well but that changed eventually because imports we start going low sevens and then sixes and racing became pretty you know we we took away the imports took away a lot of the money from the domestic scene you know let's let's actually talk about that i i had um rafael estevez on in the last episode and he yeah. was saying about the same thing when they would go out to the, um, I believe it was English Town as well, and probably oh, Atco, yeah. that they would just uh, they would get ridiculed by the uh, the muscle cars. So yeah, what what was that like? I, I, you know, for for me, look when we were building when I was still racing the Supra and the Solaris were still being built. So Solaris were not even built yet. I started. Like I said, I'm a trash talker. So for uh, for NHRA, 
uh, editor of National Dragster. His name was Phil Burgess. So nobody knew me at the time. I would go to national events and I say, I want to match race Warren Johnson. I didn't even have a car yet. <laughs> the car wasn't even ready. And I wanted to match race Warren Johnson. Warren Johnson was the king of pro stock at the time. You know, just just before the summit team of um, Greg Anderson and them started surpassing uh, John Forrest, John Forrest was the king. Mm-hmm. So my eye was on John Forrest. I said, I want to race John Forrest. I want to race John, I mean, uh, sorry, uh, Warren Johnson. I want to race Warren Johnson. And it took about a year for that to start circulating a little bit. And by then, the cars were already built, and we were running uh, maybe 720s, 730s okay. at the point at that time. And what did Warren Johnson have? Warren Johnson had the uh, was a GM uh, 500 cubic inch, you know, naturally aspirated pro stock car. They were running. They were running six uh, at the time. They were probably running around. 690s okay when when the Solaris were unveiled when we were running 720s 730s consistently we were not in the sixes yet nobody was yeah in the import scene the pro stocks were already running 690s and i was already challenging them for a match race and um and so for me i didn't really care how they looked at us i wanted to race them head-on anyway yeah you know and then when the cars were built I was all for it, and a lot of people know that we we had this big match race set up with Warren Johnson against Warren Johnson and his son. Uh, that fell through, mm-hmm. unfortunately, mm. because they pulled out and GM pulled out. Really? That's a whole different, oh, we I'll talk about that. Yeah. Okay. I'll, yeah, a lot of people know the story, but maybe some forgot, and maybe some don't know the details. But all right, yeah. we'll definitely we'll definitely come back to yeah, that. Yeah, that one because we got to talk about that one. But uh. So let let's go ahead and uh, let's let's take it to the back to the beginning, man. You were uh, born in France. Uh, I was I re- I was I lived in France a long time. Okay. We also lived in Kuwait a long time. Got you. And here, so three countries. When did you move to the states? Nineteen uh, nineteen eighty. At what age w- was that? Sixteen. Sixteen. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I moved here. Uh, we were we moved here when I was sixteen, uh, and. Uh, Obviously, I didn't have a license. I had a license to race because I had a road racing license in Europe. Uh, I didn't have a street license here, but I was, you know, mm-hmm. I would take my mother's car anyway and yeah, go around look, looking for street races. So, so moving here at sixteen, uh, what was the reasoning for uh, your relocation? Oh, uh, my father. You know, my father has family in uh, Fresno, California, and I think originally we were supposed to move to California, oh, but wow. we ended up in New Jersey. Got you, got you. So at sixteen, what is your what is your mindset about uh, you know uprooting from everything you know and coming to a new new land? It was it was different, you know. Um, it was some you know in some ways it was easy, some ways it wasn't. Uh, new friends, completely new friends. Yeah. Um, but you know something about the car scene, you make friends very quickly. Yeah. So when you were in uh, in France, is that where when you started racing go karts? Yes. Yeah. When I was a kid, my father put me in a go kart track just for fun. That became uh, that became um, I got hooked, you know, and that became more of a just hey, let's go to go kart track. It was more like we got to race this weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to prepare yourself. You know, you got to you got to go out there and practice. You got to go out and practice. Um, so 
that was at seven, eight, nine, ten, all the way to fourteen years old. Wow! And that was your first taste of of adrenaline. Um. Well, maybe maybe that, and also just bicycle jumping off of cliffs. Not cliffs, but like you know, dirt jumps. Anything that was dangerous, you know. <laughs> anything was dangerous. And of course, you know, the first thing my father would buy me a bike, the first thing I would do is remove the brakes to make the bike lighter <laughs> so that you could jump higher, you know, all that crazy stuff. So it was not only speed, it was uh, whatever it was, whatever was dangerous, I was attracted to. Really? Where do you think that that comes from? I don't know. I'm the only one in a family like that. I might, I might be adopted. I'm not <laughs> sure. There you go. So <laughs> fast forward to 16, you, you moved to, um, to New Jersey, you say? Yes. What city was that in New Jersey? Creskill. Creskill. That's, uh, we're seven or eight miles north of uh, New York City. Okay, got you, got you. Yeah, we're north, north. I'm northern New Jersey, very close to New York City. What, what do you? So we're about we're about uh, sixty five miles from Englishtown Raceway Park. Okay, got you, got you. Okay, so w- what are your thoughts when you uh, when you move to uh, the states and you start seeing New York, and New Jersey? Uh, what were my thoughts? I mean, it was different. I mean, it was, everything was different. Um, I know my father took me to English town when I was, uh, 17 years old. Okay. He took me to English town, but it wasn't for the drag racing scene. It was, um, uh, it was a, uh, some car, car show that he wanted to go. My father had, had a, a Oldsmobile 442 when, when he was younger, when I was younger. Gotcha. So. My father was into the car scene, uh, not car scene, but he was into cars. And then for 1982, for my graduation, he bought me 1982 Trans Am. Got uh, you. Yeah, he bought me Trans Am. Uh, and uh, that's where I learned to, um, that's where I learned how to screw cars up. <laughs> so what was the first mod that you did? <laughs> the first one? The first one. Uh a Magnum, it was called a Magnum Nitrous Kit. <laughs> I opened the box up. I bought it from a place not too far away from you called uh, Mother's. Okay. And I bought the kit. It was a Magnum Magnum kit. It had three jets in it, 100, a 200, and a 300 horsepower jets. And, of course, I need the biggest one there is. Yeah. So just going through the directions, I opened up the car. I did whatever I had to do, put everything together, and put the jet in for 300. I went up the street, went around the block, went to this big open, uh, this highway by us called 9W, and I hit it, and I left everything on the highway. <laughs> Wait, this, so what year was this Trans Am? 1982. And what year was it? 82. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, I can imagine doing that, man. So what did, what did your pop say? When you brought it home, I, I called a friend of mine who had a gas station about five miles down the road. He sent me a tow truck. Yeah, towed the car over to his place, and um, no, my father didn't say anything. You know, I said, you know, I, I need, I need new motor. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my my friend who was just a mechanic, an Exxon station, but a good mechanic, not a you know not a uh speed shop yeah he just put an, another motor in there um 
But it wasn't long before I blew that one up too. Really? Because I was doing myself things myself that I wasn't I shouldn't have been done doing. Yeah. And then eventually, eventually put a bigger motor and a real built motor by somebody, you know, who does that stuff. Yeah. And uh, then I had a real car. Got you. <laughs> Man, how did it feel to uh, have to pay for those two motors? Uh, th thankfully, I had my father's credit card. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Oh, you know, I, I always hear all these old stories, man. And people are like, yeah, I just got a 92 Civic and I just put a nitrous kit. And I said, what year was this? It was 93. I said, dude, that's a brand new car. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I used to, um, obviously, the, the nitrous, that was the only time I, you know, that was it. That was the end of the nitrous. I had a bad taste in, you know, I had a bad taste with, with, the, with the experience. Yeah. And um, um, so... With the second motor, the second motor, what we did was actually, so the car came with what at the time was called crossfire fuel injection. Mm -hmm. It might may have been, it was something that was offered on a Corvette, a 1982 Corvette as well. And so it was technically a fuel injection system. But what we did on the second motor is yank all that out, got rid of the injectors, got rid of the computer, and my we put a carburetor. Mm -hmm. and, um, we put a carburetor and... Um, uh, and I don't know how much horsepower the motor made, but I'm guessing at the time it probably made 350 horsepower. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it was, I mean, the car came with 165 horsepower. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was 165 at the time. It was rated at 165. That's a big jump. Yeah, so I'm thinking we made about 350 horsepower. So then the next thing to go was a transmission. So we put a transmission in, uh, Anyway, that's how that's how it started. You know, that's how my racing started. Uh, that's how the street racing started here. Got you. So, so did, were you street racing the Trans Am? Yeah, absolutely. Got yeah, you. Yeah, we were street racing. I was street racing the Trans Am. Uh, I was. I learned to hustle because, um, you know, um, I would. I learned from somebody down the street that you know you have to lose a couple races to get a bigger race yeah and that's what i was doing and then eventually everybody caught on so i had to start driving further and further away uh down towards the jersey shore area which was as as much as an hour and a half drive at night on a friday or saturday night yeah um just to pick up a race because here nobody raced me and then eventually i started racing i had to race motorcycles by the time the super came around i was racing motorcycles oh, shit. i was racing against motorcycles got you so when you were racing back then with the trans am what were some of the uh the streets or the areas that you guys were racing at um we were racing like when you talk to for example from you know the boys from drt they were more in in new york mm -hmm. we were more i was more in new jersey got you so uh there were areas near english town raceway park actually the highways near English Town Raceway Park, and the highways closer to Jersey Shore, mm -hmm. and uh, and another highway like New Jersey Turnpike in between here and uh, English English uh, English uh, English Town, there were pockets of highways where we knew there wouldn't be any cops. Yeah, between exits, and that's where we would race. And there was a lot of stuff was roll-ons. You know, you roll, you know, you do a you know roll from second gear up and. Uh, so it wasn't uh, street racing as far as light to light. Oh. I mean, of course we did that, but it was that was not like an arranged race. It was just, you know, you just, just come up on somebody and, 
decided to race them. So it was more roll racing instead of like from a dig? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, on a highway it was, yeah. Got you. <clears throat> okay. So um, we would have like a one or two cars slow down the traffic somehow and, you know, the rest. But all this was in – actually, technically, it was all in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> it all happens in Mexico, man. Uh, I mean, especially to this day in uh, in Mexico, they slow down the traffic. And I love uh, watching those videos at like 1 or 2 in the morning. Shout out to Ty yeah. Boogie. but. <laughs> I've uh I've I've been out to the East Coast many times, but I've just never had a chance to catch one of those races on the highway, man. That's that's one of my goals for sure. There's a there's definitely a lot of passion out there for racing. Yeah, yeah, and then of course it was racing at the road, you know, road racing. Also, um, my favorite here was uh is a place called Lime Rock in Connecticut. Okay. Then you have Poconos. Uh. So, so those those are the two big road road racing courses that still exist. So you you had the Trans Am and you're doing some street racing with that. When do you start moving over into um to uh God what have, the street the street um track racing, not drag racing, road racing. racing. I'm sorry, road racing. Road racing. I was always road racing. Okay. It, the, the, the street stuff was just on the side. Just. What were you road racing? Uh, was it the Trans Am? I was, ra- yeah, it was. Uh, that was a tra- road. Tra- I was racing a road racing the Trans Am, um, and I also had uh, access to other road racing, full blown road race cars. Oh, okay. Yeah, Porsches and stuff. Got you, got you. Yeah, that were not street cars at all. Got you. They were, they were just full blown road race cars. So, a uh, road racing. How long does an actual race take? I'm not. I'm not really that familiar with the roll I mean, racing. Uh, at the time, depending on depending on uh, the type of racing, it was uh, anywhere between uh, 20 minutes and uh, hour and 20 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Or also there were other other events called like trials where a car you do a time lap, mm-hmm. but it was one car on a lap per time, uh, one car on the racetrack at a time. You know, just doing laps yeah. and trying to get the best lap times. Got you. Did you find yourself with much success with ro- uh, road racing? Yeah, yeah, road racing was very good. I, I love road racing, uh, I, and I still do. I still love road racing. But, um, you know, it was a different... I, I got hooked on the drag racing in a different manner. I don't know what it was. Uh, it may have been the scene. It may have been the culture. Mm. I think it was more the culture and the scene than, than anything else. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it could have been, uh, you know, it, it could have been... Uh, you know, a Euro- European car instead of a Japanese car. Uh, the scene was the scene. Yeah. You know, I, I'll call it import, but it was Japanese. But it could have been, you know, it could have been a British car. Yeah. But if the scene and the culture was the same, it would have been same. I feel you, man. So let's get back to that time where you're at English Town. You uh, almost lose it for your first pass, second pass. You get a yeah. whopping 15 seconds, hands in the air, success. <laughs> What's your feelings like after that towards uh, drag racing? Oh, I had to figure out how to go straight and fast. <laughs> I mean, that was the bottom line, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can't do this, you know, you can't you can't be hunting the walls and trying to go fast in a straight line at the same time. So then I started looking into tires, um, uh, just, just learning how to launch a car with enough power. Mm-hmm. And 
not to slip the clutch and you know not to destroy the clutch, which I was doing regularly on the on the OEM set. I mean, once we started, you know, then then I got hooked up with a really cool shop that was doing all my work. Uh, he ended up being our engine builder. His name was Bert Gertner, and uh, he had a shop that I took the Supra to, and I said, make my car faster. You know, but at the time there was nothing available. Mm-hmm. Everything was you had to, you had to get everything from Japan. Yeah, there was there was nothing here. The cars were brand new. I mean, there was no aftermarket. You know, uh, aftermarket support was very very minimal, almost nil. It didn't exist until ninety six, really ninety seven. So we're talking you know, about ninety three ish around there. I yeah, my I started ninety three. Gotcha. You know, middle of ninety three. And um, and the only the only thing I got my hands on was a uh, HKS exhaust system from Japan, mm-hmm. and uh, what else? A Canon open air filter. I mean, these are only things available at the time, you know. And uh, uh, I was talking to somebody recently. There was a company called Aris Akumoto. He had an intercooler and also a uh, an exhaust system, but it wasn't at the same quality as HKS or Grady or anything like that. Uh, but Grady and HKS stuff started coming in maybe uh, 95. I got my first T78 single turbo kit for the Supra in 96. Um, injectors and the fuel rails, they were very hard to get. I mean, it took months to get it. Mm. So how would yeah, you so- even order something like this? Would you have to go through a shop or? Yeah, I went, you know, Bird at the, at the time had the shop and... Um, so he would order parts for me, and when they arrived, I'd take the car to him, and he would install it. Uh, in between, I was racing a lot, so I needed maintenance. Um, uh, you know, breaking the turbos, the OEM turbos, I was blowing them up left and right um, because I kept cranking the boost up. Yeah. I wanted more and more and more, and they could only take so much. I think they could have probably taken 19, 20 pounds you know, consistently, and I was at probably 22, 24. Got you. And um, I would blow them up, and then eventually he got me the single turbo kit, and that was in uh, 96, and uh, oh boy, I was talking about an on-off switch. Oh my God, you have zero, then all of a sudden it was like 550 horsepower. And 550 at the time in 96 was a lot of horsepower. That's still a lot. was a lot of horsepower at the time yeah and uh it was no joke i went with the factory turbos with the factory let me put it this way with the factory turbos uh an eibach lower lower lowering kit um better motul um uh brake fluid i would do in Lime Rock, I would do 102.58 second laps. 102.58 was very strong ETs, I mean, um, lap times. Okay. Switch from that to the single turbo. The first weekend out there, I was going 130. It was way too much horsepower. I mean, the car was all over the place. The spool up time was different. It wouldn't spool up in time. It, it spooled up at like 6,000 RPM, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, Lime Rock was a tight course. So you need momentum, and and I'm like, so now I have to learn to like keep my foot in the throttle and never lift and just keep braking. And so now my brakes were fading. So it took probably uh, 20 hours before I got 
back down to the 102 level with a T78, but it was a losing proposition because you had M3s that were making 300 horsepower less that were coming in and passing me on the corners. Yeah. And I would retake them on the straightaways because of the power, but when we went back into the infield, they would just go around me like I was standing still. Yeah. You know, because that because of the momentum that actually gave me a lot of respect for uh, road racing because it's not really about the the amount of power that you have i remember i went to um have you heard of a uh, grid life before of what a grid life no well grid life is a is a series that's out now and they have uh they have drifting and they have road racing and they'll have like okay. concerts at night and things like that mm, um okay. I went over there and I actually rode in somebody's car and it was it was like a, a Civic EF making probably like 150 horsepower and he scared the shit out of me. I was like, man, how are you able to do this with just such little horsepower? But I guess when you're when you're going on the road course that you just don't need that much power. An important part of buying Honda parts online is making sure that you can trust the company that you're dealing with to get you the right parts reliably. You're spending a lot of money and you spent a lot of time researching your build. The last thing that you may want to do is send cash to a website where you may never see it again and worse yet, never see parts. With Heel Toe Automotive, an 18 year history track record is part of the deal. Heeltoe brings you deep industry connects, professional parts recommendations, alternative ideas when your parts aren't available, and will even contact you if something on your order looks out of ordinary before it ships. Heeltoe's unique checkout allows you to select a deadline to receive your parts to make sure you get them in the time for your project plans. You can buy parts online anywhere, but Heeltoe knows what truly matters to an enthusiast. Professionalism, swiftness and accuracy heel toe is in your corner visit heeltoeauto.com or you can call or text at 949-295-1668 and make sure you check them out on instagram at heel toe automotive yeah you just foot to the wood you know just like keep momentum and and you it, it won't look fast from the outside but the stopwatch doesn't lie yeah you know the stopwatch doesn't lie if you took my you know, twin turbo, 400 horse, uh, 450 horsepower Supra. And then you watch that video and then you watch the, you know, single turbo 600 horsepower. You would think I was going faster with this because it, the way it was moving around, but I was 20 seconds slower. Mm. And that's huge. 20 seconds, you know, 20 seconds. If you're doing 10 laps, <laughs> forget it. Yeah, no, definitely. So when you, uh, when you decided to go from the, the, twin turbo to the single turbo was it more towards uh you just want to make the car faster or you want to make it faster for drag or were you still balancing both drag and uh road road racing no that was at the time was when i was when i put the t70 single still strictly road racing i had still never been to the drag strip. oh wow yeah yeah i still had never been to the drag strip. it was all street and road course. got you got you. on the street the car was a total sleeper i mean the only thing I did is I, I took I took the factory wheels I painted them black. Mm -hmm. I had the HKS exhaust, and that was it. It was a total sleeper, making you know probably six hundred horsepower at the time. Got you. And uh, and you know if it was a serious race, I would I would put in a race gas and turn a boost up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and then after that it was uh, I got more serious and I went to a Haltech computer mm. 
so we can have a little bit more tuning adjustability. Um, then, then the race, then the drag strip came in. Got you. And uh, and then with the drag strip, it was more about uh, the power was there. It was more about clutches. The factory, you know, the factory clutch was lasting about, um, if I remember correctly, maybe six passes. Once, once, once I started going to the high 11s, um, it was six passes per, per clutch. Shit. And then at the time there was really hard to find clutches. And, um, I was looking for uh, twin disc clutches from whoever made it. And they were usually a little too on off and I didn't like it. Uh, finally we hooked up with, uh, Tilton and a lot of people know about the Tilton clutch, you know, the carbon carbon clutch. And that was a game changer for us. It was a game changer. Once we started making seven, eight hundred, nine hundred horsepower, and then the, the Tilton came in, it was a it was a game changer. It was an expensive clutch. It was I think retail was fifty eight hundred bucks at the time. Oh, yeah. Shit. Yeah. In in two thousand and one, two thousand, that was a fifty eight hundred dollar clutch. It may still be now, I'm not even sure. Wow. But you know, it was it was it was an awesome clutch. You can you can drive it on the street. You can slip the shit out of it. Uh, it wanted heat anyway, and you can go to drag strip or you can go to road race, and and it shifted very smoothly. And it was uh, but it was an expensive clutch. Wow. But it worked. So, when did you feel like you? Ahead here a little bit because uh, I'm jumping ahead here because from I went from the single turbo to the T to the. Tilt and clutch. It was, there's a little bit more in between. <laughs> no, no worries, man. No worries. I know when it gets talking about these old stories, man. These memories just just come flooding yeah. in. So, but you know what? I also want to talk. About? I want to talk about all the racers. Yeah. I don't want to just talk about the, the cars. I want to talk about the racers, so people know. I mean, you know, followers who are were younger, much younger back back then, and maybe they were 14, 15 years old at the time. Um, I want them to know. I would like them to know. The, the the racers both from the east coast and as well as from yeah the west so let, coast. let's get into it so you start uh drag racing and you you realize that you're you're developing a new passion for this sport yeah. that um you didn't think that was much difficult before you actually did it so uh you're diving into it going to the track tell me what the atmosphere is like um the 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 cars that are there you know the the fast racers from East Coast, some guys that you're hearing about from the West Coast, just paint us that picture. Yeah, well, when, when I was um, when I started first going to the racetrack with the Supra back in 97, 98, 99, when we had a big event at English Town, an import event, and then the guys from the West Coast came, it was like, you know, Adam Sawatari with his RX-7. Uh, then you had uh, uh, Papadakis with his Hondas. Uh, Bergenholz, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, there were a few more, maybe one or two more from the West yeah. Coast, and then we had the East Coast guys. So for me, it was that I'm like, oh man, I want to go, you know, that's that's where I want to be, you know, I want I want to be there. I want to I want to go that fast, and um, it wasn't long before you know I, I learned the sport and made friends. Uh, put put a team together, which was the most critical and most the best part of my history is my team. Yeah, you know, um, honestly, I can say my team. You could have given them any car, any motor platform, 
I don't think it would have made a difference because of how they were and the passion they had and how we worked together. So we worked together. We won a lot of championships. We won a lot of races. We had a lot of ups and downs. We had good months and good weekends, and we had bad weekends. But at the end of the year, every year we came out with a championship. So, and it wasn't me and it wasn't the car. It was a team. I love it. As well as the sponsors, of course. When did you realize that you needed a, a team and how did you go about creating a team and what were some of the things that you would offer them uh, to be part of the team? Yeah, so I, I, 2000, it was around 99, 2000. So it became more and more demanding because I was expecting more and more of myself and I was expecting more and more of the car. And... Um, I'm not, I'm very competitive by nature. So, and I'm very focused. So, you know, I set my mind to it. I'm like, okay, what do I have to do? And I made a very long-term plan. And I knew that it would have to involve sponsors. I knew it would have to involve a, a full-time team and no other jobs. No other, no side jobs, this is it. No side jobs for anybody. It's gonna be a full team full crew, full-time job, and full-time racing. Mm. And this way, wow, we can go win a championship, you know? And uh, that was in uh, 99, I was starting to feel that way. And by 2000, I had, you know, all the mechanics that were working on the race car, I mean, on my car at the time, the Supra, I hired them. Mm -hmm. I hired them to be my teammates and I hate using the, the, the term crew members because I call them teammates. So I... I didn't understand that. Um, she doesn't know about loyalty, that's why. <laughs> the phone just like picked up my Google or something. Anyway, um, um, so, you know, I knew I need, I wanted teammate teammates and each one had to have their job. I, I learned that from road racing. You know, you, you had... You know, you, you had everybody had their job to do, and when everybody did their job and gelled together, then then you have a, a full blown race team, regardless of the car, and somehow or another, can always make a car go fast. And uh, so that was in like around 2000. So I hired Bert, and then his employee I hired because I got along with him very well and I liked his work ethics. Uh, then I hired. Uh, through other friends, I knew others who were also had good ethics and good mechanics, so I hired them and and we gave it a shot. Um, and except for one one uh, teammate, uh, we over we had no turnover. We had we had the same teammates for ten years. Wow, very cool. Yeah, and so uh, then then sponsors start coming in because we we were doing well. You know, we were doing well. I was. I was um, I was running. I I ran it like a business, so it wasn't just. This is this is what was hurting me seeing at the time with the younger racers. Um, it was I, I can see it for years. Uh, uh, people didn't see it as a business. It was more like a, a race, which is fine. It, it's a game, which is fine, but it also has to be a business to attract the sponsors. We had a lot of sponsors. And I'm telling you, 
a lot of sponsors would come to us and I would say, no, 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 go, go to another team. I, and that, that's a really good team. They're, they, they need some support once you go to them. Yeah, but, you know, we need to be on new car. We need to be on new car. Um, well, I can talk about that a little bit later. I'm jumping ahead again. Okay. But uh, we, we gathered, we, you know, we, we partnered up with some good with sponsors. And uh, by the time the Solara hit the scene, we, we were all, you know, sponsorship-wise, we were strong. Team-wise, we were strong. The Toyota platform, 2JZ Motor, was super strong. In fact, I don't think anybody knew at the time how strong that platform was. Um, we were getting an idea about it from the Supra days because we tried a lot on Supras. The one thing I always did on the Supra was I was not ever, ever, never afraid of breaking the motor. So I'm like, okay, let's put this motor on a dyno and let's break it. Let's break it. I want to see what this can do. You put a, whatever it is, whether it was the OEM pistons or aftermarket pistons. Let's see how much we can get out of these pistons. And keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing until we find we found you know the, the weak links on the Supra. So by the time we actually built the pro cars, all we had to do was basically mm, put bigger turbos, mm -hmm. learn the clutch. As far as a platform on the motor in the in the program, we were already running Motec on the Supra, which is something else we also did is run the Motec on the Supra way back before. I don't know if anybody else had Motec at the time, gotcha. to be honest with you. Um, maybe uh, maybe Flacco had, Abel, I'm thinking might he might have. Mm -hmm. um, Abel Ibera, uh, I doubt, but we definitely had the Motec back in the late 90s in the Supra. Um, so we learned on the Motec, and when we built the Solaras, we, already, we were already very highly versed with the software. Got you. Um, so we, when the Solaris hit the scene, we, we hit the ground running. We weren't, we may have been green with the car, but we weren't green with the racing mm -hmm. because we established, I think a pretty good, uh, you know, we, 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 we did very well with the Supra running in the Naira series with uh, Craig Lieberman running director of, of uh, uh, Naira and the whole Naira staff. We had an awesome time racing Naira. I mean, those are my best days racing Naira events uh, all over the country, you know, East Coast and the West Coast. We have stories about that. Oh, my God. It was, Naira was awesome, you know. Yeah. We had also IPRC, but uh, we, I committed more to Naira uh, at the time. Um, we had a great time racing Naira. And that was just coast to coast? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Supra was coast to coast in 2000 and 2001. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We traveled. We traveled. So we had to get... I got a rig and the whole thing and the full-time team and uh, sponsors came in and, uh, uh, you know, financially we were good. Uh, so it was just a matter of doing our job. Downtime with Downstar would like to welcome our newest sponsor, Rywire Motorsport Electronics. Rywire has been around since 2005, supplying you with solutions for all of your motorsport electronics needs. Whether you need a simple ECU adapter, engine harness, chassis harness, or PDM setup, they can get you taken care of. Offering products for most popular engine platforms from Honda, Toyota, Nissan, GM, hey, even Lamborghini. And if you have any private label needs, they can also take care of that as well. Rywire is the leader in motorsport electronics in our community. 
and we're excited to have them part of the Downtime with Downstar family. Please, please make sure you guys support Rywire. You guys could check them out at rywire.com or on Instagram at rywire underscore motorsport underscore electronics. I know it's long, guys. If you just search Rywire, it will pop up. And if you're searching, make sure you search them on YouTube and you can check out their YouTube channel where they are working on their new EV S2000 build. We're super excited for that. And we're super excited for Rywire to be part of the Downtime with Downstar family. So please, guys, make sure you go show Rywire some love and tell them that Downtime with Downstar sent you. Once again, that's rywire.com. How were you able to accomplish all of this with a, a full-time team uh, prior to the sponsors? Um. I already had most of the equipment, to be honest with you. So it wasn't, I didn't, the only thing I had to do was take care of the, the team, mm -hmm. you know, with salaries. Uh, but I got, you know, we got, I got approached by Toyota back in the 90s. Because what I did was um, back in 98, so we were doing some of the East Coast races here with the Supra. But there was a big event in English, uh, in Las Vegas at the Strip. And I knew Toyota was going to be there and, of course, a lot of the West Coast teams were going to be there. I said, you know what? I'm going to go there. So I, I had a 28-foot trailer. I hired somebody to drive the trailer to, to, to Las Vegas. We flew to Las Vegas and, uh, and because I had one thing in mind. I wanted to, because I knew Toyota was going to be there with their, with their Supra, and I wanted to beat that Supra. And we did. And we also went into the nines, which was the first time ever for a unibody six-speed to go into the nines. Yeah. Wow. And... So it wasn't too long after that. That's how I established a relationship with Toyota. You know, it was uh, beating them in the West Coast, being an East Coast racer and really new to the scene. Uh, and maybe they liked the way we presented. You know, I had all, everybody was wearing uniform. Yeah. Everybody, nobody was, you know, everybody had to be clean. Everybody had to look, everybody had to look corporate. And that's what was my thing. It had to be, you know, we walk as a team. I alone can't do anything. The car alone will never do anything. But the team together, especially when the team looks together uniform as one, it's a huge statement yeah. on the racetrack as well to the corporate eye. It's you know it's it's a it's a it's a whole package. Definitely. And uh, that's how I was able to attract sponsors very quickly, very early on, because I think luckily we as a team put on a very good image right away. You know, that's something that I really want to tap into is the uh, the sponsorship aspect of it. You know, always looking yeah. back into the, uh, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, you'll see some names on cars that you can't even believe. I, I see one of them on your car was a uh, Circuit City, you know, I, ca I can't even imagine to this day going to the track and seeing like a Best Buy sticker on yeah. a car. So um, tell me what it was like back in the day getting a sponsorship and what a sponsorship meant to you and what were some of the things that you guys did to, uh, to attract and to lock in sponsors? Well, what we did with the way, the way I worked with sponsorships was uh, so uh, in, to answer like the Circuit City, for example. So Circuit City, what I was doing was when we had Streaklo as a sponsor, so I was very fortunate to get Streaklo as a sponsor in 2002. Uh, at the end of 2001, uh, we were, we possibly may have had a deal going on with uh, 
a, a wax company, a big name. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there was a little bit of a delay on that. And I was always a type where I would say, listen, you know, I'm on fast forward here. I'm not even on play. And, you know, when I hit fast forward, there's no stopping. I don't care who you are. This is where I am and this is where I'm going. Mm-hmm. You can come along for the ride or you can miss out. And this is your window to decide, yes or no. You know? Uh, so, unfortunately, not unfortunately, but, uh, you know, with, with the other company, it wasn't going smoothly. And then Streetwell came and basically asked to meet me. So, uh, Streetwell is also based out of New Jersey. Uh, I met with them two or three days after we came back from a race in, uh, actually, the last race of 2001. And um, 2002, I'm sorry. And we sat down and I told them, you know, what what it will cost to become a sponsor on my cars. Yeah. And yeah. to be part of the team. Uh, and it would have to be a partnership. It would have to be a multi-year partnership. Uh, and I'm willing to work for the, te- for, the, for the corporation five days a week while my guys work in the race car five days a week. And then come Saturday, Sunday... I only work for the team. I don't work for the sponsors. I work for the guys. Wow. So if my if my teammates are working five days a week trying to set the race car up, Saturday, Sunday, I work for them. I don't work for the sponsors. So you say you you would work for them. What would you be doing for those five days a week? Oh, work with the marketing department. How do we bring, for example, you know, with, with Circuit City, you gotta how do you promote the product? You bring in the models at the racetrack. You know, bringing the models at the racetrack, coupons, uh, discounts, uh, whatever it may, whatever it has to be yeah. is, you know, how else can you justify asking for a lot of money to become part of a team? Yes. It, there's no way it can just be by winning on a Saturday, Sunday. Now, keep in mind, though, we were very lucky at the time. We had a TV package, you know, races were on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, print was great. You know, it was all the magazines at the time were, you know, covering imports like, you know, uh, it was crazy how imports were covered on import. We didn't have social media. So all we had was the magazines and the TV coverage. So we had TV, uh, TV packages that we can also present mm. to, to sponsors. And that was worth a lot of money. It was worth a lot of money. Um, but working for if a kid tells me right now. Hey, Aro, how do you how do you get sponsorships? My question to them would be, do you really want to be sponsored? Because it's a job. Mm. Once you get a paycheck, going to the racetrack on a Saturday and Sunday with your buddies is no longer. Mm. It's a job. Yeah. Whether you want it, whether you feel good, whether you feel sad or whatever, you have to go to the racetrack. And part of that whole thing is working with their marketing companies from Monday through Friday. Because if you do well on a Saturday, Sunday, you want to take advantage and you want to uh, capitalize on that win throughout the whole week. Because if, you know, if a, uh, the, um, the budget committee of a company says, hey, why are you spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on this team? You know, we can say, oh, well, look, look at this. We just increased your revenue by 25%. Yeah. And it all happened at the racetrack. Yeah. It all happened at the racetrack. And here's the proof. You have 
coupons on your on your discount coupons, for example, with 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 the uh, tags or what the you know, barcodes, uh, yeah, barcodes that were presented at racetrack, you know. So, um, unfortunately, I didn't see any of that from any of the other teams. Yeah, and that worried me to the point where in two thousand and four, I'll jump for I'll jump ahead yeah. here a bit, a little bit. I was very worried for the sport because I knew we I wanted to start to. 2005, 2006, I knew I was going to, um, we were getting burnt out a little bit after so many years on the road. But I was worried about the sport because sponsors were all gone. There were no new sponsorships. Um, And uh, a lot of teams were financially in very bad shape. Yeah. Um, uh, They didn't capitalize on the scene in 2002, 2003, 2004 with my mentality of running it as a business. In fact, I was always pissed off at all the other guys, especially a few in the East Coast, because you know I wanted to be like NASCAR. In NASCAR, if a sponsor wants to go get on a hood, they knew it's going to be two and a half million dollars. Yeah. They want to get on the you know on the quarter panel, it's you know million dollars. Yeah. It was no, there's no, there's no if there was a price, but for us, everybody was like, you know, if I'm charging. I was charging five hundred thousand dollars a car. Yeah, <laughs> I would not. If you're not willing to put five hundred thousand, I'm not. I'm not interested. But then I assure you, there were people doing the same thing I was doing for five thousand dollars, <laughs> and I would piss them off. I'm like, I would go to them, like, dude, like, what the hell did you just do? You just gave your car away for five thousand dollars. Yeah, he goes, uh, yeah, I want to uh, just to get my foot through the door and just to get a relationship. I'm like, oh yeah, then what? What if they double your sponsorship next year? It's gonna go from five to ten thousand. What are you gonna do with the ten thousand? How do you, you know, how do you, you, you just undercut me and you undercut all the other teams, because I said we all have to get together and say, look, it's going to be five hundred thousand dollars for the hood on a pro rear car. Yeah. Maybe for a front wheel drive car, maybe a little bit less, yeah. but it still has to be a lot of money. Three hundred thousand dollars. That's it. You pick your team. You don't like this team? Okay, that team, but it's still going to be $300,000. That team's not going to sell you, you know, they're not going to shortchange the rest of the field. But everybody was doing that. Wow. And everybody was doing that. It might still be happening today, but I don't think it's to that same level because you don't have that kind of money coming in now. Back then, I'm telling you, there was money flowing in left and right. There was a lot of money available, especially for the import scene because the import scene was taking away a big chunk of the domestic scene. A big chunk. Yeah. You know, even Ford. You know, Ford jumping into the import scene. Uh, GM jumping into the import scene with Ecotech Motor. They were they had money to pour in. They couldn't afford to not be in it. They couldn't afford to not be in it. And that was all because of the import guys, the Mazdas and the Toyotas and the you know the Hondas. All right. The, I, I... I got another question, man. This is oh my god, you're you're killing it right now, bro. You know this the way that you're saying it is the way that that I I think about everything in our community. I think that that as a collective, we all think that the ceiling is a lot lower than it really yeah. is. But your actual proof that you can have corporate sponsors, you can have you know the hundred thousand dollar, five hundred thousand dollar, whatever you want for sponsorships. So how did how did that era even happen? Was it 
Was it because of the movie, everything? It was, it, was it just like the perfect storm? Or do you think that that's something that you could actually recreate these days? Man, I, I don't know. I mean, the movie had a big part in it, but the scene had already started, you know, in the West Coast and also in the East Coast. The scene had already started. We had already made a move. There was already a, a culture. Yeah. You know, Naira had eight races a year. Then you had RDRC. Then you had uh, Drag Wars. Mm-hmm. You, you had all of this. And and, uh, and 90% was grassroots racing. You know, a lot of everybody had a full-time job. And then on the weekends, they would go out banging cars and gears and all that stuff. And 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 and, uh, and racetracks were, some racetracks were smart. They started promoting the events. A lot of the racetracks were afraid to promote the events. So they were, they were afraid to spend you know, $15,000 on flyers because they were not, they were not sure if, you know, they would attract at the gate, you know, but once they saw it coming, they were like, Oh, so, Oh shit, we'll spend $25,000 on flyers, TV ads. And I'm sorry, radio ads. Yeah. Um, then magazines came in magazines were starting to cover the events, pictures. Uh, I can't even imagine what would have happened if there was social media. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't even imagine, you know, but but that was our social media in in a way, and um, so was it a perfect storm? I maybe maybe not. Mm-hmm. But also for everybody, including us, it was all uncharted territories. Yeah. I mean, you know, a, a new event was was an uncharted territory for both the sponsors, the racers, as well as the promoter and the racetracks. You know, but fortunately for us. And for the sport, it worked out because tracks were stands would be. I mean, when you came to English Town, it was packed, standing room only. There was no room for anything. We didn't see the same amount of uh, enthusiasm at the racetrack, uh, for example, in Texas or even in the West Coast, maybe, mm-hmm. as we saw in, in the East Coast. For some reason, the East Coast racetracks filled up the stands more. Yeah. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but that's the feeling, that's the impression that it left with me. You know, that's the impression I have. Um, but if you want to call it a perfect storm, maybe. Can it be replicated? Absolutely. There's no reason why it cannot be. Yeah, let's, let's hear about that. There's no reason why. All you need to do, all you need to do is to have one dedicated series. You can't have... We had issues back then with, I'm very open about this. Uh-huh. I do not like NHRA. Okay. They they destroyed the sport. They destroyed the sport. And I have few friends that work for NHRA. They're still my friends. And I'll say to them, you guys destroyed the, the import scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, I say it on my Instagram. I have no problem saying it. Um, I don't sugarcoat what I'm saying. I don't sugarcoat anything. I say it as it I is. I love it. And uh, so NHRA was very threatened by the import scene. NHRA and GM, those two names is what destroyed the import scene. So you can't have NHRA involved. NHRA can't even, they, they can't even take care of their own domestic stuff right now. So you don't want NHRA involved in the, in the sport of import racing. But you can have the, you know, people who have, you can get a few people from, uh, Naira, guys who ran, ran drag wars back at the time, RDRC, get them together, no conflicts, only one 
one vision mm-hmm. with maybe 10 or 12 races a year with a championship with with the prize money tv package would help mm-hmm. but then with social media you really don't need tv package to be honest with you, you, you everything will be you know like you and youtube yeah just, influencers yeah, YouTube or whatever but you need to have you need to have a you have to have a legitimate series with rules very important uh-huh. um and and uh and and people have to be willing to build cars as per the rules and then when you have that and you have the series and the trophies and the championships and the prize money at at each weekend plus bonuses for the year yeah. it can be replicated and sponsors may come back in so but, I'm sorry to cut you off. When, yeah. Tap into the, uh, the the prize money. What is some of the prize money from back in the day? What what were some of the the pockets look like? We for us, for example, uh, a win a, a winning weekend just in contingencies was fifteen thousand dollars. Oh shit! Okay. You know, just just from from winning. You know, between uh, um, I remember in the in the beginning in the beginning. Uh, as long as you had, like, if, if you put a Goodyear sticker on and you weren't running Goodyears, you still got your $200 or $500. But Goodyear got smart as hell. Wait a second. You know, if you want to run, if you want our contingency money, you have to run Goodyear stickers, uh, Goodyear tires, as an example. Gotcha. Uh, um, uh, but then you had issues with people that were had, you know, uh, sponsorship with, with maybe Mickey Thompson. Okay. You know? Uh, so... So they couldn't run a good year, which is okay because Mickey Thompson would pay them anyway. Uh, but we had, you know, we, we were making as much as $15,000 on a, on a winning weekend. But that was in a pro rear. I'm sure the other classes were a little bit less, but it was still. But I had a problem with that because what they did was, you know, first place was uh, in a full field. First place was... Uh, Five thousand dollars, I think, mm-hmm. for the pro rear, and then second place would be like, you know, fifteen hundred dollars. No, they shouldn't do that. Take the five thousand, make it three thousand, yeah, and pay all the way down to eighth place. So, so the, at least the person who's in eighth place at least pays for the hotel. Got and you. You can't, you can't, you can't deny the guys who were in seventh and eighth or ninth because, you know. Uh, because you know you you can't have one or two or three teams running running carrying the sport. So you feel like if you're in the the one through third place, that the competition is so close that the from fourth to tenth, they don't even have a chance to get close to that. So if you yes. want to if you want to um, encourage them to keep on trying, you have to give them something. Yes, got you. Yes. And then, and then, um, you know, you, you spread the money out, and you know, it's just, it's it's for the good of the sport. Gotcha. That that wasn't happening. I mean, you know, I think I think back then they should have even paid for just qualifying. Mm, yeah. You know, just just the fact that you qualified because you were there. I mean, it may have not been too a lot of money, but hey, it was something. It would have been something, even if it was, you know, two hundred bucks. Yeah, it would, it would have been something. But, you know, we we when when you have, you know, four or five teams always winning weekend after weekend, 
and making all the money. Uh, I mean, looking at it from you know, from a from from a, for the love of the sport, that's that's not fair. Got you. You know, it's not it's not cool. But uh, I I would I was proposing a lot of that stuff, but uh, it didn't work because. Um, because, you know, it wasn't, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, some of the other guys would, some of the guys that came in second, third, or first would say, oh, no, why are you cutting my, my paycheck? Yeah. Why, you know, but that's how I see it. I, I think we should have, I think the prize money should have been spread out yeah. more uh, to, to help the, the smaller teams. At the same time, though, I mean, I'll tell you a very good story. Uh, and and some may remember the story because uh, at a driver's meeting the day after, somebody made fun of it. And it was the first race of 2004 when we had unveiled the Circus City sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So it was the first race of the year at uh, Phoenix, in Phoenix. And I, I came to the racetrack and I was wearing my shirt and I had the Circuit City emblem on the top. And I hadn't seen some of the guys in, since SEMA. So they were all hanging out in one, one, one of the golf carts. And I'm like, hey guys, what's up, what's up, what's up? And, and the person sitting, I'm not gonna, I, I forgot his name actually, sitting on the golf, golf cart with his, his feet up on the top, <laughs> wearing flip flops, and his sock was, I had a hole in it. His toe was going through the sock. <laughs> so as I'm walking, all I see is a toe coming out of a sock and his feet up on the top on the dashboard of the golf cart. So <laughs> so he's like, he goes, hey, man, he goes, are you ever going to leave any sponsors for us to take? I just looked at him. Kid you not. I reached down to my pocket, took out my wallet. I gave him five bucks. I said, do me a favor. I go, Go down the street to Walmart and buy yourself a new new socks with no holes and look presentable. Then maybe somebody will come and approach you. <laughs> but when you're out like that with your toes sticking out of a sock, who's gonna come and get you? Hey, can you be you know, can you represent us? <laughs> so, oh. so it was the next day and it was a meeting going on and we were talking about attracting sponsors and it was a question and it was just the racers and the uh, uh, and the uh, people from. This was an NHRA event, so it was Jim Skelly and uh, uh, Jim Skelly, uh, Javi Ortega, um, uh, Gary Rush, and all, all the racers. Mm-hmm. And somebody mentioned he goes, "Well, there's a rumor going around that Ara is going to buy everybody new pairs of socks." I'm like, "Yeah." I'll buy everybody a new pair of socks. It means that it's going to bring money into the sport. No problem. I'll do it. But you can't walk around with, with ripped socks, flip-flops, your toes hanging out, and expect to be represented. You can't. It's not an image. Yeah. And if you're going to do that, don't don't put your feet up in the air like that so everybody can see your toes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so... So you had you had a lot of talent, yeah. Right, yeah, a lot of talent, really passionate talent, excellent drivers, really good mechanics. But then, what was hurting the sport was that, yeah. Because 
but you can't blame them. So I used to go to the to companies and say, hey, look, there was at the time there was NHRA came to me. They said, hey, look, you had uh, I think it was O'Reilly. O'Reilly wanted to become a sponsor, a title sponsor. Mm-hmm. NHRA lost the summit sponsorship and they were looking for a sponsor. Gotcha. So I think it was O'Reilly or one. I think it was O'Reilly. O'Reilly comes in and goes, look, we will sponsor you guys if we get on the street flow cars. So NHRA came to me and said, hey, look, this is the deal. We want them, but they want to be on your race car. I said, no, I don't want them on my race car. There's five, five other teams, four other teams. Why don't you distribute the money to them? Um, uh, I just I just, uh, uh, just lost a train of thought, what I was going to say. But, um, the uh, sponsorship, the O'Reilly's, they wanted to sponsor NHRA. Yeah. But yeah, they weren't the sponsor to become a title sponsor, but as well, they wanted to be on a car, but they wanted to be on a winning car. Gotcha. They, they didn't. And I used to, I went to them. I said, listen, I go, why don't you take a young, a young racer, right? And mold them yeah. and teach them. These are young kids. They don't know any better. They're, they're not trying to be rebels. It's just, they don't know. If they're walking around with, you know, maybe a shirt hanging out and maybe mismatching shirts with their team. It's okay. Teach them. Yeah. And then take them in and mold them. You know, that's what, you know, if you look at Kawasaki with motocross, if you look at, you know, Formula One, what do they do? They take these 11 and 12 year olds that are racing go-karts and they, they put them in a contract, put them in their development team. And then by the time the kids are 16, 17, yes, granted, they don't have, uh, you know, a t- normal teenagers because they're at the racetrack every single day. But when they're 17, 18, 19, they're already groomed to become, you know, a corporate image and making gazillion dollars. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying gazillion dollars for the import racers, but that's what they should have done. They should have taken, they should have taken, you know, NHRA should have taken the money and say, hey, look, we have three young teams here that have potential to make a big impact in the next 10 years. Don't look at R. R. is an old guy. Mm-hmm. He's going to leave the sport in a few years. But there's five other teams that are 15 years younger that have 15-year lifespan in the sport. But, you know, that's not what they wanted. But NHRA didn't even push for that. Mm. Anyway, you know, that NHRA as a NHRA as a biggest drag racing sanctioning body should have thought about that. They should have seen that, you know, but no, they wanted to squash the sport anyway. So they squashed the sport because they were afraid of losing money to the domestics, which where they were. Sponsors were leaving the domestics and trying to get to the import scene because of the impact that we made. We were making a lot of noise, you know. The import guys were making a lot of noise between the racing, the, uh, you know, the the bikini contests, yeah. the the whole culture, you know, the DJs, and it wasn't a racetrack. It was it was like a three days of a party. You know, you got you had the racing, you had the bikini contest, you had the DJs, you had, uh, you know, you had car shows, you had you know burnout contest, you had the hotels that night. Yeah, yeah, you had everything, and and domestic money was going to the import scene, and NHRA was very afraid. And uh, so they killed the sport. But sponsorship-wise, I think I think we all made mistakes uh, with not grooming the younger teams at the time. Um, of course, then you had 2007, 2008 with the financial meltdown. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in 2004, 2005, I already felt the effects. I already felt that it was little money was drying up in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. I felt it with uh, 
street, Circuit City and Streetwell. Yeah. Uh, and talking to them and talking to that circle, I got very, I was very fortunate to to be able to hook up with large companies, and I was seeing where money was flowing, and and I started seeing the money drying up from uh, sports, anything motorsports. Got you. One of the most critical parts to any build is the clutch. Without a proper clutch, you won't be able to get that power to the wheels. No one wants to spend hundreds of dollars on a clutch that won't hold their power for more than a few races or spirited drives. It is important to go with a clutch that you know that you can count on. That's why many people choose Action Clutch over the competition. Action Clutch offers OEM replacements all the way to 1200 plus horsepower that can be found everywhere from streetcars, drag cars, and even formula drift vehicles. Action Clutch makes all their kits here in the USA with material sourced locally in Los Angeles. Not only is Action Clutch made in the USA, they have also made a strong focus this year to give back a percentage of sales back to the community during these hard times, providing impacted families with groceries and other necessities. Contact Action Clutch today with whatever you need and you will receive the family treatment. You can find their product line at actionclutch.com. If you don't see what you need, please feel free to call them at 323-269-6051. You can also DM them on Instagram at actionclutch or email them at sales at actionclutch.com. If you need help choosing a kit, Action Clutch can get you set up with the right kit for your build. Okay, you know, um, man, we're going to have to make that last part uh, a separate video because that there's so much knowledge in that. You know, I, I feel... Every time I go to the track and I see all of these teams, I look at them and say, you know, you guys, this whole atmosphere can be like Formula One. It can be, but we all have to collectively think the same way. We have to think yeah. about the bigger picture, you know, and then when you say about the guys that are taking 5,000 versus 500,000, you know, that person, they're probably just thinking, you know, I need this money right now, but it's it's best to just hold off for a little while yeah. if everybody fights the good fight and then the the import community you know even the honda community just the honda community itself can propel itself even higher if everybody was like-minded and they thought about things the same way but you know with with racing comes ego and pride and it sounds like that was the same thing that was going on back in the day that the guys they they had too much pride and ego to allow themselves to you know reach that next level yeah yeah i mean uh it was there it was there for everybody everybody to grab uh but only a few did and it wasn't it wasn't because um I mean, I was very, I looked at it in a, in a certain way. I said to myself and I said, I would say to my sponsors, I'm a businessman who happens to be, a, to have a race car. I'm not a race car driver trying to become a businessman. I'm a businessman and I happen to have a race car and this is what we can do with the team. And this is where we are. This is where we're going to go together. We can definitely go there, but I'm going to go there regardless. And I used to hate it, and I still hate it when somebody says, without the sponsors, I would have never done this. Well, the sponsors don't want to hear that. Sponsor doesn't want to, the sponsor wants to know, a partner wants to know that, wait a second, you were going to do that anyway. I want to be, you know, I want to be part of the, the, the journey. I want to be part of the program. 
But wait a second. So you're telling me that if I pull out, you're going to fold? Mm. I don't I don't want that. So I used to not like it when people say, without the sponsors, uh, I couldn't have done this. No, the sponsors don't want to hear that. And the, and the other thing was very important that I did in my program was I had a marketing manager. So I had two marketing managers. It cost money, but I was able to work that into the sponsorships. Uh-huh. Because I said to the companies, listen, if I'm going to charge you $350,000, if you don't help me with activating the sponsorship, that $350,000 is going to be a waste of money. So we need another, you know, $45,000 to get a manager to activate it, to help manage the sponsorship. Because I don't have time for it, because I'm too busy with the team. I'm busy with with the track. I will do everything I can but I don't have the language and I don't know the marketing language like a marketing manager would. So for the extra $45,000, which would be nothing, yeah. you, you can, you're gonna get maybe another $150,000 value. Wow. So, so what we had was we, we actually had two, two agents, collectively they, they were getting almost $8,500 a month. Oh shit. So we had an $8,500 a month budget on one was four thousand and the other one was forty five hundred. Uh, one was strictly going out and looking for sponsorships, and the other one was taking the sponsorship that we had and they were activating it. So they were, uh, they were, you know, for example, taking advantage of our wins and how to incorporate it into. But what what that showed to the sponsors was, hey man, th- this really is a business. This is not. We're not just slapping a sticker on somebody's race car. I mean, this is this is serious business. Now we know why he's asking for so much money. So I used to tell you know people who put together put together putting together a PowerPoint. Don't be afraid to put big numbers down because if you put a small number down, they're not going to take you seriously. Yeah. And if, if they can't afford the big number, they're going to say, "Wait a second, come over here. I want to ask you a question. Why are you asking for so much money?" You say, "Well, because." It's going to cost, you know, five hundred thousand dollars to to uh, to bring in the the model. It's not just about the racing. It's a small portion will go to the race car, but a big portion will go into marketing the brand. And if you go, for example, and spend five hundred thousand dollars on Speed Vision at the time, Speed Vision or ESPN. Uh, Commercial, you get one second yeah. airtime. But you spend $500,000 with me, and throughout the year, I'll probably give you five minutes. You mean collectively five- with you on, on ESPN? And- yeah. When we're winning and if we're on TV for 10 seconds, 12 seconds, 15 seconds, 25 seconds, collected five minutes at the end of the five, five minutes is worth. You know, seven million dollars. Yeah. So you just paid five hundred thousand dollars, but you got seven million dollar value out of it, just just from ESPN alone. Got you. Wow. So, so that's why that's why it costs money to get on a, a good program. It's not just the team, the the market, the 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 display, the the trailers, the the. Um, uh, the, the presentation mm-hmm. and you know the the press releases that go out on a Friday 
before the race and the first thing Monday night. People were getting from us. You can ask a lot of people from back then. We were sending out two press releases a week. One was on a Friday before the race and what the team was up to and, and where we were headed. And, of course, was talking about the sponsors. Yeah. And then, of course, on uh, first thing on Monday morning, uh, how the weekend went. And that was press releases going out to everybody. So it was a bombardment. Of that. So that cost money. Now, those press releases, what form did they come in? Was it an email or? There were emails. Got you. All right. Now, at the time, emails. Um, it was on our website also, but it was on emails. So, you know, we got a hold of a big mailing list. Yeah. And, I mean, even even our competitors were getting the press release. Yeah. You know, we were on every in everybody's we were in everybody's face, but that cost money. So sponsors would, were willing to pay for that because that's one thing less that's one less thing they had to do. And then at the same time, it justified why we were asking for so much money. Now, in this day and age, um, a great parallel for that would be a YouTube video. So if you yeah. have a YouTube series for your uh, your channel for the car, the the weekend of the Friday before the Monday after, right. I mean, it doesn't take much to come out with a video and have it out, but it's just the consistency of it. Yes, yes, consistency. You know, week after week, you know, week after week, week after week, the press releases went out, good or bad, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and uh, so, you know that that was that's that's why it was a business. Yeah. You know, uh, the business of racing has nothing to do with racing. Business of racing is is uh, it's not just being at the racetrack and, and winning. Yeah. Or, you know, or breaking a record. Man. It helps. It helped us a lot. We were winning a lot. And when we won, I was getting interviewed a lot. And when we were getting interviewed a lot, of course, you know, people saw Circuit City and Street Glow. And, you know, there were actuators that I think NHRA hired in one year. I have a spreadsheet of that one, actually. I think it was 2005. And they hired somebody who would literally take you know, pause all the interviews and all the events and, and, and then come down, you know, write down when he saw a street law, how many seconds it was. And when he saw summit, how many seconds it was. And then, and made a list. Yeah. And we were on, we were on TV longer than street club brand got more TV time than the summit, even though summit was a title sponsor. <laughs> we were, fortunately we were winning a lot. So we were getting a lot of interviews wow. and that was worth a lot of money for street club. You know? Yeah. So when Circuit City came on board, I'm like, here, and this, this I didn't make this up. This is what the banks. This is what the this this comes straight from ESPN. Those are the analytics, which uh, guys yeah. listening, the uh, analytics for pretty much everything is very readily available for you now. If you have a uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, uh, man, I hope you guys are taking notes right now. Uh, you're dropping some gems, brother. Thank you. Definitely, man. Uh, but you know, so that that's all the. That may, that may be the boring stuff. The cool stuff was the racing and the camaraderie and the trash talking and the shit talking and, you know, everybody getting upset at each other every once in a while. And But at the end of the day, it was uh, a lot of high fives. Yeah. You know, yeah. we, you know, we, we formed a very good camaraderie with a lot of the teams. They were, honestly, if you were a jerk, you didn't last. Mm. If you were a jerk, you didn't lie. You, we saw outsiders that came in from other sports. 
they thought that they can come in and buy themselves in or muscle their, their way in didn't work they just either didn't click yeah you know with with the culture didn't appreciate it uh or they didn't do well and they're just like oh shit this is oh these guys are serious they look like kids but oh they're six you know they're four bangers and six bangers but oh man you know what's this new turbo technology <laughs> uh well, what, what do we do with this is yeah we turn the boost up and we blow up motors I and mean, what do we do with this they didn't realize that hey there's a you know, you, you have to figure out, I mean, we're all in uncharted territories. We're making shitload of horsepower, uh, but it was also very easy to, to blow up motors left and right. Yeah. You know, we, we had, God knows, I mean, you have to talk to the track guys, but there were a lot of oil downs because we were all pushing motors left and right. You know, we, we were just pushing everything. We were giving the cars to track everything we can possibly, because a lot of times we didn't know any better. Um, and, but we learned we learn and we learn fast. I mean, the industry learned fast. The only the downside for that was the sport got very expensive very fast, and that was the, that was a bad thing. It got it it it, it got very expensive and very fast. As, as far as expensive, as far as the the parts and technology. Yeah, it's just you know it's just you know like. I mean, I don't know the history of, of drag racing, but I could imagine like pro stock, for example, if you want to take NHRA drag racing, even funny car and top fuel. It took years and years gradually making little bit increments, small increments in in import scene. We were making. We were adding hundreds of horsepower a month, mm. you know, and. Yeah, maybe the motors are good, but guess what? The, the, the drivetrain didn't take it. So now. People had to, companies had to build, you know, better drive shafts to to put up, you know, put up with the horsepower. Uh, tires, we didn't have the right size tires for our cars, even the front wheel drive cars, you know. So the manufacturers had to come up with different compounds, and they had to keep up with us. Mm -hmm. You know, they had to keep up with us. We were way ahead of the. We we were moving extremely fast, EQ wise and technology wise and horsepower wise, and then the racetracks had to. Uh, be able to prep the racetracks better for us because number one, the car started to go really fast and there were multiple accidents that shouldn't have, were very easily avoidable mm -hmm. because racetracks didn't take the horsepower that these cars can make very seriously and it's, oh, it's no big deal, you know, but people end up, you know, into the wall for, for no reason uh, at least a few times. I mean, I had a bad wreck, but that was strictly my fault. That had nothing to do with racetracks. That was just, that was, you know, that was just us. You know, me. Yeah. That was an error. Um, but a few a few other cars, uh, uh, Manny Cruz, you know, uh, DRT was working on their car at the time. It was in 2000 and, uh, 2002, uh, Atco Raceway. We had no business racing that day uh, because the temperatures were really bad. The track was really bad. And no matter how they prepped it, it just wasn't enough. But NHR insisted that we race. Mm. And then Manny comes out with us and, we avoided the wall, but Manny came in and hit the wall really hard, destroyed the car, lost the car for no reason. And then after that, NHRA comes, okay, we're going to cancel the event. Really? We've been telling you to cancel it for the last seven hours. Wow. But because there was TV package, ESPN would say, oh, no, wait a second. No, no, no. If we have to come back tomorrow, it's going to cost you an additional you know, $10,000 an hour. 
NHL would say, oh, no, we're not doing that. We have to run the event today, mm. even though the conditions are not good. Shit. So let's um, let's talk about when you started realizing that the uh, the the temperature was changing in the community and how you were able to foresee that and what ended up happening. What do you mean temperature like? As far as uh, you know, you saw that the um, the big sponsors were starting to pull out. Um, you know, you said that everything was running too fast. Just everybody wasn't prepared for where it was headed to. Yeah. I mean, and that that was a financial thing. I mean, for a lot of the teams, you know, the the sponsorship wasn't there for them to be able to um, afford to go fast consistently. So you had inconsistencies, a lot of inconsistencies. So, for example, in uh, NHRA Pro Stock, the only thing I'll, I'll say Pro Stock is because our class, the Pro Rear class, the chassis and the platform weight the way the cars were built are in the same same as the pro stock cars, except they ran 500 cubic inch motors and we ran import cars, gotcha. import motors. Um, but they they would have you know 16 cars running within uh, a tenth of each other, whereas we would have you know eight cars that ran within two seconds of each other, and top three cars would run very consistent, you know, within a tenth or two, but the rest would be like a second behind us or even two seconds. So for those guys to get the parts, have enough parts to be able to push the motors to go as fast as we were was extremely difficult without the sponsorships. So when when they had the opportunity for sponsors and they didn't capitalize on it, uh, uh, and then sponsors start to go away um, because of, I think they've, you know, they foresaw the, the financial meltdown coming, you know, in 2008. Um, um, you know, for those teams, it was already over with. It was just, it was it was over. Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, NHRA was gone too. NHRA crushed the imports. You know, NHRA bought the series from Nopi and DRA, which I was a big fan of. And we promote, we, we ran Nopi every year, every single race. And uh, NHRA came over and bought Nopi and then they crushed Nopi. They, the only reason they bought Nopi is to, so they can kill it. Mm. That's the only reason, because of the culture. They were afraid of it taken away from their domestic. Their domestic racers were scared shitless of the import racers. Mm. Scared shitless. And I don't care what any domestic racer says, I'll, it, I'm not, I, will, I will tell you, they were scared shitless. NHRA was, and NHRA was for their own community. They were afraid of the import scene. So they bought Nopi, and, uh, and they just crushed they got Nopi and, and, you know, and that was it. Hmm. He went away. So, um, let's talk about one of the, uh, the bigger races that you had where, uh, both of the street go cars did a certain pass, man. We, there was, um, there was a couple, I mean, there were a couple of epic, Epic races with the, both cars with with our other driver George, who was uh, a very dear friend of mine. Um, there were we had some epic, really good races, and we had some sad races. I don't know which one you're talking about. The uh, the six second one. The six second. So when we uh, that was a, that's a good story. That you know in in the early 2000, of course, 
the pro rear class was starting to get bigger and, and we were going faster. 730s, 740s, 720s. Uh, middle, of the year, middle of the season, we were running 720s. There were a few other cars running 720s. But uh, there was one car, and, and I hate NHRA for doing this. They created one class. They, they created a class for the V8 cars. And there was one car. And it was a, uh, a Turbonetic-sponsored Celica with a Toyota V8 in it. And, um, and uh, a, a very close friend of mine, Craig Paisley, he, he's now in the West Coast, but he's an East Coast guy, New York. Uh, he was building a Toyota truck with a V8. But um, his program went a little bit south with the motor and they had to switch to the 2JZ, which was a very, very good decision. But the V8 of, of the Turbonetics car remained, and they raced all by themselves every single weekend, and they were promoted as the winningest team. Mm. But they were the only goddamn car on the field. <laughs> they would qualify number one, and they win. They would win. They were the only car in the field, and they, they, they claimed to be 10, race, 10, 10 wins in a row. I'm assholes. You got you, you have no racer. You no. Sorry, maybe I can't. You say can that say word. whatever you want. <laughs> I'm like, I used to go to NHR. I'm like, are you kidding me? How do you promote a winning a, a winning street like that when there is no other cars in the field? I mean, why is there even a V8 in there? You shouldn't have a V8. Yeah. But that's a whole another story. So, so here comes. So now I'm furious. Okay. I love turbonetics. Here I'm wearing a turbonetics shirt right now. Turbonetics <laughs> has been with us. I mean, I'm, I've been, I, I haven't, even if I race my bicycle right now, I pretend to have a turbonetics turbo on Because <laughs> mentally I go faster. Yeah. But they had this turbonetics uh, sponsored V8 car with a non-domestic racer. They, go, they went and picked up these brothers who were really nice guys from Florida, Scranton brothers, and uh, from the Mustang world. So they came in and uh, the Celica, they bought the Celica off of somebody, I don't know who, but it had the V8, like I said. And uh, so... Cars are starting to get faster, seven, maybe 710, 708. We start running 708, 708 a couple times, and I could start smelling the sixes. Now everybody's like, who's going to be the first in the six? Who's going to be the first in the six? And um, it was October of 2008. Uh, Saturday, qualifying. We came up to the line. Scranton went out first, and they ran a seven. 702. Now, keep in mind, even the V8 had not run as sixes yet, mm. right? So everybody was expecting the V8 to run the sixes because they had the horsepower based on the mile an hour that they were pulling compared to the two JZs that we had and the other cars in, on the field in our class. Uh, by the way, our class, the Pro Rear, was a pretty competitive class. I mean, we had racers. Gotcha. Unlike the V8, which was <laughs> the only one in the class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I don't know where the motivation would come from. I'm like, we won. We won. Yeah. <laughs> we won. Oh, we qualified number one. Yeah. Number one qualifiers again. Yeah, we won again. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, I wanted to build a V8 just to fucking beat the shit out of them. In fact, you know what I did? I had my chassis builder put a V8 plate make a plate for my car in, in, so if I wanted to put a V8 and just to, so I can go race them in that class and, 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 and maybe, maybe 
you know, make them maybe come off their stupid high horse. Yeah. So anyway, October uh, of 2008, that weekend, they ran, and then we came out, we ran. We came up and we ran, and uh, uh, the car felt good. Banged through the gears, and I think I heard what I heard on the radio after the run, and and it was like the there was like um, a lot of noise in the frequency. So like I think I thought I heard a six. Uh. You know, I wasn't sure. I thought I heard a six, and I came up, came around the exit, pulled pulled over, turned the car off, came to the weight station, and and the guys are like running. I'm like, somebody's running six 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 ninety eight. I'm like, are you fucking six ninety eight? Holy shit, we were the first to run the sixes. I mean, I came back and like, and, and uh, you know, big hugs from the team, teammates and other competitors and uh, uh, fans and just family and sponsors. And uh, I, I don't think we were expected to be the first. Yeah. Um, but we were. So that was... You know that will go down in history for me and for the team that we ran a 698 mile an hour was only 194, mm-hmm. but nobody at the time had run anything, even in high nine, 190s yet. Uh, so we ran a 698, 190, uh, 195. Um, then that same day, the other car with George also ran a six, six seconds. So we put both cars into the sixes that weekend. The other street glow car. Yeah, at the time it was not a streetcar sponsored yet. Gotcha. It was yellow and a white with a red bull on the on the side. So um, so we got both cars. The team got both cars into the sixes. That was October of 2000, 2002. Okay. And so we became. And then uh, the other epic one was uh, later in two thousand three with the streetcar sponsorships. We were the two. We were the first two hundred mile an hour side by side import race. And it was the two cars, and both in the sixes. Yeah, both in the sixes, but uh, but as well in the two hundreds. Prior to that, we were never in the two hundreds. Wow. We were one ninety eight, one ninety seven, one ninety six, one ninety five, and then when we start breaking to the six uh, six eighties, uh, then we start you know more horsepower and turning up the boost. And Turbonetics was with us from those days. So I'll, I'll always say Turbonetics was the the first turbo in the in the sixes. Yeah. Um, and you know, the one thing I used to do talking about, uh, sponsors on, on radio shows or any, any shows that I would do, any interviews I would do, I would never mention sponsors. Mm-hmm. I would always mention, talk about the guys on the team, you know, Bert Gertner, Kevin, Louie, uh, Scotty, Mikey, George, um, and and my agent used to call me and like, look, the sponsors are pissed off at you. I'm like, why? It's because you didn't mention their name. I'm like, no, go 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 tell them go, go tell them to fuck off because it was if it wasn't for the guys, that car wouldn't have made a made it to the racetrack. You know, they weren't gonna win. So I'll talk about the sponsors every single day for the week, but come Saturday, Sunday, I'll only talk about the guys. Because they made this car go down the racetrack, you know? Yeah, I could have choked and I could have screwed up a lot, and I have, but thank God majority of the time I didn't, and what I did is I showed everybody what the team did. Yeah. 
So when you put a car together, whether it was the right combination of the horsepower and the clutch, by not choking, by making the car go down the track, putting out the number, I was able to show everybody what the team did. You know? Yeah. So, so I wasn't there to talk about Toyota or Turbonetics or Street Club. No, they, they're, getting, they're getting what they want. But Saturday, Sunday, I talk about the team. Did you have this conversation with them for them to understand that? In the beginning, I didn't, but then they understood. Got gotcha. you. Like, you know, they they understood. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, man. Because because I, I was doing what I had to do, and and beyond, all week long. Yeah, I was always the one that was like, you know, coming up with ideas. I was the one emailing them, like, hey, let's try this, let's try that. I was I was constantly in touch with the marketing department. Let's do this, let's do that. You know, because I wasn't the one who I wasn't. I'm not. I'm not a mechanic. I don't know anything about fixing race cars. In fact, they never wanted me around the race car because they were afraid I was going to break it. I wasn't even allowed to touch the tools, you know? <laughs> they were like, get on the quad and we'll call you when it's time to race. Go, go. They're like, go, go, go. Oh, you know? man. And, you know, so, uh, so with the sponsors, it was like, so I would do a lot with the marketing department during the week and, and then after the racing. But that Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, it was for us. It was, it was for the team to get together and, and see what we can do with the work that we did or they did during the week and how we can put it together and, and hopefully come away with a win. And a lot of times we did. We did. You know, we, we won. You know, in 2000 and, uh, 2003, we won with both cars. We, were, we won a championship, championship and a second place in both series, Nopi and NDRA and NHRA. So in NDRA, we were first and second. NHRA, we were in first and second. We were crisscrossing the country, hitting both series because the way they worked, because the series had such a conflict with each other, they were purposely put racing you know, so far apart that they would force racers who weren't funded well to pick one or the other. Ah, got you. You know, and I had, that's another topic I would like to talk about. Yeah. So... Luckily for us, with our funding and sponsorships, we were able to hit both. So we were going back and forth. We we hit every 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 single race we can, we hit, and um, we walked away with with a championship in both series and second place in both series. So we cleaned up that year. We cleaned up. I mean, if that was the Las Vegas table, we cleaned house. We took all the chips with with um, you know with the yeah. prize money. And the, and the uh, sponsorship, uh, the championship money at the end of the year and, and all that. Now, do you think it was uh, a collective of these events or it was one uh, one series that was pitting each other against each other? So if one's going to do one on the East Coast, the other would do it on, on the West Coast. Yeah, that's what they were doing. In fact, in fact, in, you know, at the end of the year, I would have two phones, I would be talking to NHRA one phone and I would be on with NDRA on the other phone because neither one would release their schedule because they wanted to see who would release first and see based on that schedule if they can schedule a conflicting event. Oh, shit. You know what I'm saying? So so I would be like, hey, you have to release your schedule. Hey, you have to release schedule. And they'd be like, no, I'm not going to release it until he releases, they release it and vice versa. I'm like, guys, you can't do that to the racers. 
and there were many races, many events that conflicted. Yeah. And races had to pick between one or the other. And we did that a couple of times and we did it based on our points. If we had points to, if we can afford to lose points in NDRA, we went to NHRA. But at the end, I'm like, you know what? Screw NHRA. I'm going to do NDRA no matter what. So we did every single NDRA event and we didn't do every single NHRA event because of their tactics. Got you. They were you could see that they weren't in it for the culture? No, no, they were not in it for the culture at all. At, at all. Gotcha. No, NDRA, Naira, IDRC, Drag Wars, it was all culture. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, drag racing was big, but it wasn't just about the drag racing. It was it was everything, yeah. you know? It was um, it was, it was was uh, an event. With NHRA, they like, you know, it's just about drag racing. No, not, not an import scene. Maybe the domestic side. You know, not not an import scene. Import scene, it's it's everything. You got, you know, you you, you have the car shows. You 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 have the bikini contests. You have the the, the DJs and the bands and you know uh, the vendors. Vendor, yeah. yeah, you everything. I mean, you know, then and you have the drag racing. So it was, it was it was a culture. Yeah. You know, and uh, NHRA didn't see it that way. Uh, and uh, and. And Jim didn't see. I mean, I have a good friend, Gary Gardella. He's an East Coast guy. He's a New Jersey, New Jersey, New Jersey guy. He was uh, he used to race Hondas, and then GM picked him up, and he moved over to GM because uh, he was constantly beating up on the GM boys with his Honda, and they decided to put him on their team so they get stopped, you know, so he can help him win. So and uh, so so even though GM had an import racer on their team. GM was also part of, in, had a part in killing the sport. I got you. So let's get to uh, Warren Johnson, man. I got to hear this story. So Warren Johnson. So, so here I am, completely unknown to the to the domestic world. They don't even know the Solar was weren't even out. So it's not like they were seeing a Solar run, you know, seven thirties or seven twenties or even breaking, you know, anything. And here I am talking running my mouth and I want to, you know, match race Warren Johnson and his son, Kurt Johnson. And, uh, and I would even go up to him at NHRA events. I'm like, listen, I don't know. You don't know me, but my name is R.S. Lanning and, and I want to match race you. And I think it would be great for the sport. And he said to me, Oh, you, you run the turbos. Yeah. He was, uh, you know what we that's like watching paint dry i'm like what he goes yeah it's like it's like watching paint dry these people understand they want to hear and smell and feel a race car i'm like fuck you i'm like so you don't want to race me okay fine but i kept talking about it and one day Hot Watt Magazine, editor, I still have his phone number actually, Matt King, I believe his name is, he contacts me. He's like, so the word is around that you want to do a match race with Warren Johnson. I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, what if we, uh, what if we sponsor it? How much do you want? I said, zero. <laughs> I said, zero. I don't want to get paid. Just tell me when and where. 
I want no money. They're like, really? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, because Warren Johnson wants $75,000. I'm like, fine. Pay him $75,000. I don't want any money. I just want to race him. So they arranged it. Warren Johnson actually accepted it. We go to an event called Extreme Rush, Street Law Extreme Rush, twice a year at NHRA events. And Turbo Magazine, a uh, Hot Rod Magazine, we put both the Street Law Solaris and both of the uh, Warren Johnson cars, uh-huh. Warren Johnson and Kurt Johnson. Kurt Johnson had the Kiss team, you know, band, yes. the Kiss band. So they had the whole Kiss team. They came on board. I, I, got in, I, got, I met with uh, the Kiss people, uh, the band. <laughs> And they're like, yeah, 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 we're on this, we're on this, we're on this. What? We put both cars, did whole photo shoots, did all the photo shoots, Hot Rod Magazine prints it out, puts it out. The Hot Rod Magazine for that month was the biggest selling publication ever. And guess what happened? They pulled out. No shit. GM said no. Wow. After all that, GM said no. After the magazine came out, I still have the magazine. In all that talk, in all this, seventy-five thousand for Warren Johnson, seventy-five thousand dollars for Kurt Johnson, just to do best out of three, and nothing. So I was really bummed, and I I I had a talk with Warren Johnson. He goes, "Well, it wasn't, it wasn't my, I didn't want to do it in the first place." Mm. But I kind of got forced into it. I'm like, you you asked for seventy five hundred fifty thousand dollars. You want one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and Turbo Magazine was gonna uh, Hot Rod Magazine was doing it, and it was going to be called Hot Rod Magazine presents Import versus Domestic. Oh wow! And they did the whole the whole thing, right? The whole magazine and the whole the whole article on the similarities and the not similarities, and you know. And, and Warren Johnson is like, you know, it's like watching paint dry. He said the same thing for the magazine, he said to me. And they quoted that, you know. So that didn't happen. But instead, English Town, they said, hey, how about we hold an event and uh, we'll get one of our local uh, pro stock guys who will do a, a match match race at English Town at, at the, uh, during the uh, Summer Nationals, which is basically a, uh, an import, huge import yeah. event once a year. I'm like, oh yeah, great. And so there was a guy from Long Island, his name is Bob, Bob Benza, really cool guy. Uh, so it was gonna be best out of three. And we did have an arrangement. So the arrangement was, uh, and mind you, ET-wise, at the time, we were running um, 6.76 was our best time. We were consistently running 6.80 to 6.77, somewhere in that range. And so were the pro stocks. The pro stocks were in that same, about the same range. So, they, so Bob Benzo and I had a meeting at English Town that weekend, and we came to an arrangement. We want to make it best out of three. You know, we don't, wanna, we don't want either car to just go out win the first run and then the second one. We want it to be so that, you know, first run, one guy wins, and the second run, the second, and then the third one was going to be. All out, yeah. All out. And so I'm like, just so you know, I'm not going in first. I'll just I'll just stay at the light. I'm not going in first. He goes, well, I'm not either. I'm like, all right, then I guess it's gonna be a show. 
So turn the first light on, second light on, neither one's going in. You know, the star was like, back up. So we both back up, you know. He goes in, I go in. We take off and damn it, my transmission broke. Oh, and we never break, tra- I mean, we rarely broke transmission. My transmission broke on that. We had a tire shake and it broke and I coasted, you know, mid-track on, I coasted. And all right, no big deal. Second run, we did the same thing, but this time for legitimately his transmission broke. So now we each broke transmission. So even though that wasn't part of the plan, we each broke a transmission on a run. So now it came down to the third and final run. So the further, further, and the, the temperature wasn't good. The, it was extremely hot. The track was getting really slippery. And, and I said to the guys, I'm like, put everything you got in the car. We are not losing this race. There's no way we're losing this race. And, uh, you know, in those days I used to do, I used to do big past half track burnouts and I do my burnout all the way, almost to the end, <laughs> you know, I'm backing up and that's another story I'll tell you in a second. So I'm backing up and, and all like, I, I'm like, we're not losing this rate. You know, lights come down. I take off the car is doing this I'm banging gears and, and I'm trying to, you know, I'm getting tire shake and he's doing the same thing. And I just, I just kept backpedaling, backpedaling, and the car was dancing, and we won the race. <laughs> like, there's no way I was gonna. I was either going. We were either going to win, or I was gonna hit the wall. Yeah. It's, it's just there's no losing. I, it was either wall, or or the win. Yeah. So we won the race, but you know what? Bob Benza was a cool guy because he stepped he stepped up to the plate for the pro stock for the for the domestic guys, and Warren Johnson and. And GM and as big as an outfit they were, they chickened out. Bob Benza, who was a uh, a local guy, he he stepped up, you know. Wow. So we put on a good show, and that was a great that was a great import versus domestic. And uh, and that should have been that, that should have been after that. I even proposed to NHRA forget the match race between Warren Johnson and I. How about we take four of the top import cars? And we take four of the top dom, dom, uh, pro stock cars, and we do a race, like regular race, no match racing, no no BS, nothing. We just do four four of the top four and the four of the, you know, top four of the important top four of the domestics. But they they could not get the domestics guy. They it was a lose lose proposition for them because yeah. it's a 500 cubic inch this that whatever, and uh, but at the same time, you know. We were both making about the same horsepower. Both cars weighed the same. Both had the same wheelbase. Both running the same tires. Both running the same transmissions. You know, it was just a matter of different motors. And import guys had way less experience than the domestic domestic guys. Way less. But then I'll tell you what. If you put a domestic, when you put our cars on a national NHRA event, when they knew how to prep the track for the top few cars, we were 10 feet almost two, tech, two tenths faster. Mm. We could put more power into the ground and make it down the track. If you put their cars with all the experience they had into one, hour, one of our prepped racetracks, because they weren't prepped as well for import, they would have never been going down the racetrack. Mm. Never. Never. Got you. So, so and, uh, go, ahead, go ahead. No, there was one thing I was going to say about the- The um, burnouts? Yeah, so the burnout. So I used to, I used to do burnouts so long 
that at one point I remember racers used to come say, hey, Ara, you're doing a long burnout today? I'm like, yeah. He goes, all right, we'll just wait for you to come back. On your way back then, because a lot of them did a shorter burnout. So so I, I would do my half-track burnout, and as I was backing up, they would start doing the burnout, because otherwise what was happening was when they didn't know I wasn't doing that, they will do the burnout, i do the burnout all the way out there. By the time I come back, their tires are already cold. You know? <laughs> <laughs> their tires are already cold or whatever. They're sitting there waiting for me to, to back up, you know? Meanwhile, yeah. I was backing up full track. And so eventually it was like, they would ask me, because you're doing a longer now. A couple of times I had to say, you know, no, short. And it came to the point where Mickey Thompson was our sponsor. So uh, there were two engineers that came to the track, um, Mike and Mike. So we used to call them Eminem. Yeah. So they, they would be like, you're killing the tr- tires. You have, to, you have to cut down the burnouts. You have to cut down the burnouts. Because I was, I, my burnouts were so long that I was passing the, the performance that the, the tires could <laughs> offer us. Yeah. I'm like, but, but, but why don't you make me a tire that, well, we can't. <laughs> you, have to, you have to cut down the burnouts. I'm like, fuck. So the, the worst part of my drag racing was when I had to, cut my burnouts short you know i had to cut them down cut them down to where the tires didn't you know exceed whatever temperatures they they wanted them to 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 reach during a burnout and um but but around that time is when you know abel would come to me or would say hey what are you doing today long one or short one i'm like no today i'm doing a short one so we do together yeah you know and that's another thing we had we developed a such good um friendship with all the racers that we all talked with each other you know like okay like this one for example i was going to do a long burnout i was going to do short but i don't want them to wait you know i don't want to i don't want to kill their chances you know i'm going to do a long burnout so you guys wait a bit or i'm going to do a short burnout or if if there was a problem with one of the other cars that couldn't come up to the line and it was time for qualifying or time for run we would like hold back Mm. you know we'd like give them another four or five minutes maybe 10 minutes you know uh, the guys, the, the track guys would be pissed off at us, but hey, does, do the fans, the people on the stand want to see one car go down the track or do they want to see two cars go down the track? You know, so if you want to disqualify me for waiting for my competitor, go ahead and disqualify me, but I'm going to wait for my competitor. Wow. Now, did you do the long burnout uh, to put on a show? At first, well, you know, uh, it became like that, but I also enjoyed it. Oh yeah, you know, and then, <laughs> and then it became like, you know, it became that, you know, the monster burnout. I, 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 I had, I had to see who was, you know, half track. Yeah, you know, <laughs> when, when I opened the door, I wanted to see people sitting at the last, you know, <laughs> like I, I didn't just want to see the people that was, you know, two hundred feet. I want to see, you know, a thousand feet out. So, uh, it, it became that, and. Uh, and and also in the beginning we didn't have a, so when we set up the cars, I would come through the burnout and go through the gears and just keep my foot and and I'm I'm at 9200 RPMs, and the engine Bert guy Bert would be on my ears my engine my engine he'd be like screaming and I'm like nothing you know so they start putting a switch so that it restricts it to like 6500 RPM. <laughs> so I had a switch. That was for 6,500 RPM that I would have to turn off when I backed up, so I had the full RPM, yeah. you know, the full, full range of the RPM on the motor, uh, just so I don't kill the motor. Yeah. Not that we were killing motors, but yeah, you know, still. Damn. Motor. The engine guy was uh, 
our engine guy Bert was very meticulous with his engines, and that was his only job, yeah. was to build motors. And he was very, we called him Picasso, because he would sit there and like you think he was painting, uh, uh, doing a painting, because he was like, hey dude, you think you can build the motor faster? Yeah. You know. So we called him Picasso. <laughs> we put him in his engine room, and he was like a, like a, a genius. Yeah. You take him and put him on racetrack, he would get all fucked up in the head, and he would be like, you know, he he, he didn't do well under pressure. Yeah. But when he was in his little room with his white robe and the engine blocks, <laughs> you know, with his measuring stuff, and he would be like Picasso. Yeah. You know? Oh, man. So you, you give him, you know, he would do that, but then you give him a small task like measuring the wheelie bar, and he would fuck it up. Yeah. Like how do you how do you get a wrong measuring on the on the wheelie bar and you can do that? It's because that moment when there's you know pressure and there's racing, yeah. it would just definitely. I love the guy to death, but I we make fun of him about that all the time. Man, these are such great stories, bro. I really really appreciate you sharing them with me. Yeah. You know, um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you in here, like I was saying, I wanted to um, get to know more about the East Coast scene and the OGs of the East Coast. So when you guys were in your heyday, you're racing yeah. next to these guys. Can you name some of these guys that were uh, that were sharing the same passion as you? And, um, you know, maybe some of them are out there to this day that we could go check them out. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, from the West Coast, you had... Uh, Steph Papadakis used to race in the front wheel, and then he moved to the uh, rear wheel yeah. with the rear wheel. So we were, we uh, you know, with the AEM car, we we had fierce competition between us and uh, uh, and, and the AEM team. Uh, Steph Papadakis and and his entire team, Mario and all them, we we became extremely good friends. Um, then we had uh, Adam Sawatari from also from the West, come from California, uh, with his NSX. Mm -hmm. Um, and you had Abel Ibera with his RX-7 and then the RX-8. We had a blast racing RX-8. Uh, we used to make a lot of, we used to make so much fun of, fun of him because the poor guy would always break motors. And uh, he, he was always on the pro jacks and hitting the two-step, hitting the two-step, hitting the two-step. And we'd be in the pit and we're like, okay, one more two-step and he's not going to make it to the starting line. You know? <laughs> 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 and, and then, you know, uh, but, you know, he, he would make it to the starting line. But that one extra hit on a two-step on a project meant that he's not going to make a full six-second pass, <laughs> you know. Like, um, but but RX-7s back then, I think they were a little, now they're more reliable than, you know, whatever engine parts they have now, uh, the rotaries. But Abel was, is a big, big name on the scene. Um, then you had, uh, although we didn't race, with them because they race in a different class was the Bergenholz brothers. Yeah. Um, and then in the East Coast we had uh, uh, Craig Paisley, who now lives in the West Coast, very very good friend of mine, uh, um, an awesome racer. I had by far the most fun with him. He was deadly on a tree. Oh. He crushed me on the tree. I mean, thank God his car wasn't as fast as mine. Thank God, because he crushed me on the tree every maybe every single time I, I if I beat him on a tree it was only a few times that I can't even remember obviously you know but I do remember all the times that he killed me on the tree um, then you had uh, uh, you had Manny Cruz also on, on the East Coast uh -huh. um, um, then you have also Gary Gardella in the 
Pro front wheel drive. Okay. That was a Pro front with a GM Red Bull car. And also in a Pro front wheel drive was a Kubo's. Gary, uh, Gary Lisa, Lisa Kubo, yes. Gary Kubo out of West Coast. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen if seen them lately. They're like uh, bodybuilders. Yeah, they're ripped. They're, are you kidding me? Like Gary, you see Gary? Yeah. Oh shit! <laughs> it's like chiseled. I'm like, what happened? <laughs> it's like somebody took a carving out of a wall and they, they made a face out of it. Look like yeah, Gary. And um, but very very dedicated. Uh, that was a very dedicated group there. And um, uh. You had the Scranton brothers from Florida who eventually came out of the V8 class and they put a 2JZ motor and then joined our class. Uh, so they were no longer undefeated, by the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> because they had actual competition. From when They, went they were coming from a, Florida undefeated? No, they came from the V8 class. Oh, got you, got you. Yeah, they went from the V8 class undefeated because they were the only ones to our class and of course, they were no longer undefeated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and those are those are you know those are the names, but uh, uh, you had the Mopar guys. And another you know may rest in peace was Sean Carlson yeah. with the Mopar from back in the day. Incredible uh, fabricator. He built an awesome car back in the day with a Meguiar's car at the time, and then the Mopar. Yeah, that was uh, uh, who built uh, Papadakis's Civic. Uh, yeah, exactly. He built Papadakis's uh, yellow Honda. Um, then you have also Chris Rado from Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. a character. You want to interview a character, you interview Chris Chris Rado. How do you spell the last Ro- name? R-A-D-O. Rado, Chris Rado. Okay. Chris Rado from Pennsylvania. He lives in West Coast now. Oh, okay. Yeah, he lives in the West Coast. Uh, he he raced. Uh, he came up with the most innovative innovative stuff. Like the one I remember, even though, even though it was different classes. You know, when the wheelie bars. I think it was possibly um, Birkenholz yeah. who first came up with the wheelie bar. Yeah, it was Ron. So so to outdo. I guess the way the wheelie bar works on a front wheel drive car is maybe a little weirder. You know, different than the rear wheel car. So what Chris Rado did is he made a wheelie bar that hydraulically would either retract or extend down the track. I forgot. Oh, wow. But it was banned because, you know, it was it was banned. It was even though there was no such thing as even though that was not in the rule book, he built it and they're like, oh, shit, you can't do that. We're going to put in the rule book. <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? So he, he made something that they added in the rule book saying, no, you can't do that. Yeah. It was, it was a hydraulic. It, it retracted, I think. Wow. It helped transfer the weight to the front wheel, front wheels mid track, I believe. I think it did something like that. Um, but he always raced in the uh, in the front wheel drive class. Uh, also with the Toyota Toyota four, four cylinder, a great guy, big character. You definitely need to talk to him. Definitely. Um, yeah, those are the names. Uh, I love it, man. This. Uh, those are those are the OGs from back then. Uh, you have, uh, you know, one of his, one somebody who's active also on his team now is uh, Eric uh, Plebani. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, he's from West Virginia. He's also on. He was a, a, a 
a teammate of Chris Rado. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's many more. Yeah, no, man. These are definitely giving me some guys to look up. So uh, let's get to where you decided it was time to exit racing. Yeah. So, yeah, I was starting to uh, – we, we, we put a lot, of, a lot of weeks, years on the road, and we were away from family a lot, and I wanted to really be home with my kids. I wanted to be in a home. I was gone a lot. I mean, you know, we were gone. I was in the airport every uh, Friday morning wow. and come home Monday night. I was home Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday morning I was back in the airport. Um, and and that was also another thing is for the team is uh, is we traveled together. I went to the sponsor. I'm like, you know, my my teammates are more important than I am. If I'm flying, they're flying. You know, so uh, I, I believe I, I got, you know, extra, I think it was $76,000 a year just to, to f- from Street Glow, uh, a bunch of sponsors so so that everybody can fly with me. You know, this way the team is fresh. Yeah. You know, because I learned that when you travel across country, you get tired. You know, in a, in a trailer, even if it's a nice, comfortable rig, it's still traveling and it's more time away from the family. And if I'm home with my family, you know, three days a week, why shouldn't they be? Yeah. You know? So we hired a truck driver and he was in charge. An awesome guy, Scott Draper. He was Scotty. He was an awesome kid. He loved he loved driving across country with the rig. He took very good care of the trailer. And he became a big part of the race team, although he didn't he wasn't a mechanic at all, but he just became a big part of the race team. But he would travel across the country and you know, and, and the team, all of us, seven of us would fly together. And so we all got the same amount of rest. Man, that you guys probably built some memories over that time, yeah, huh? So, so back then, so eventually, I wanted to. Uh, uh, I can see everybody was burnt out, and I think I was the most burnt out. Few wanted to continue. To this day, they want to continue. Yeah. And uh, so I got the team together. I said, you know, I got the sponsors together. I'm like, you know, I, I think next year is going to be the last year. So. We ended it in 2005. We ended it in, in a good note. In 2004, I had a, a bad wreck, mm. uh, Pennsylvania. I was in hospital for a while. Uh, I, I suffered a uh, little bit of a brain head injury and and uh, also cardiac injury, injury uh, from the impact. I hit the wall 197 miles an hour and, and knocked me out and all that stuff. So I was medevaced out. Uh, and the doctor said, forget it, you, you're done. You, you can never be in a car again. I'm like, no, I'm not done. We continued racing that year. We won the championship that year. Two, two, that was 2004. Two, 2005, we continued. We won the championship in 2005 as well. And so we ended, we ended uh, our team journey uh, on a high note. I love it, man. And I, I'm, we're still close with, with everybody, I'm close with everybody except for one or two uh, that I lost touch with. Uh, but even now, when I go do my off-road dirt bike racing and, and mountain bike racing, if I need 
assistant. I need my teammates. I need their support. I call them and they're with me. You know, we've done, uh, although they don't enjoy it as much as they did the drag racing, nowhere at all. Yeah. I mean, not even, not even, not even close. And, and, and I see it on their face, you know, <laughs> like, why don't we just go drag racing? What is, what is this bullshit? You know, I just, we're drag racing. I'm like, no, 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 we got to go drag racing. I mean, you know, one, 2014, I, I wanted to do this 24 hour dirt bike race in Ironman class. That no teammates, it's just me on the dirt bike for 24 hours straight. It was like a first one on the East Coast, and I wanted to do it. And you, the setup was a, you know, you you get, you get, you sort of kind of get not selected, but sort of kind of get selected to to race for that event. And they have uh, an Ironman class in the age group uh, as a pro or as a novice, and as well as teams, whether it's a two-man team, a four-man team, or a six-man team. But I wanted to do the Ironman class and be out there. So I called Louie, who was my right-hand man in the drag race. I'm like, Louie, we're going, we're doing a 24-hour race. And he's first like, oh, yeah, where? He thinks it's a car. I'm like, I'm like it's going to be a motorcycle race, dirt bike race. <laughs> he's like, why? <laughs> I'm like, because it's there. And if somebody's going to win, it, it, it's got, it might as well be us. Yeah. You know, let's, let's go win a 24-hour race. We've never done that before. So he's like, you, you, you're crazy. Because why would you want to do a 24-hour race? I'm like, why not? We got to do it. And man, what an experience that was. Yeah, I bet. What an experience. I was training for that event. Uh, four weeks before I crashed and I broke my three fingers. And uh, so I didn't go to the doctor because I didn't want to get it, you know, put in the cast I needed to. So I, I started, I kept training, but like Velcroing my hand, my fingers to the handlebar. So they don't they don't flutter like this and 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 uh, and uh, uh, inflame yeah. get inflamed because they were they were very sensitive they were still broken so come race day it was getting better and better and better come race day it was still hurt but I I managed to race like that but we were I was on a bike for a total of 22 hours and 17 minutes out of the 24 hours oh so I would come in every four laps each lap was about 42 minutes I would come come in. Uh, every three or three and a half hours, get new water pack, fuel. They would clean the chain, lube the chain. Uh, I would have a like, maybe a little bite to eat, and I would take off again. And I went on throughout, you know, throughout the whole night into the morning. But you know what? Your brain goes through this range of emotions. Like you, one point you feel like depressed. Yeah. Next. Makes you feel like hyper, like you know. It was like the race started at ten o'clock in the morning, and it was like, oh, I have a good story for that one. So the whole six months that I'm preparing for this, I'm doing my calculation. What am I going to do if I have to piss? So if I'm, I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink x amount of ounces of water an hour to keep dehydrated. That means I'm going to have to do at least seven or eight stops. If I spend twenty seconds for a piss stop, shit. What if I lose the race because of that? Fuck that! I'm gonna wear I'm gonna wear an external catheter. <laughs> I'm gonna put a catheter on. I'm gonna run a tube down my I'm gonna run a tube down my pants, and I'm gonna put an exit hole in the back of my boots, and I'm just gonna piss while I'm riding. <laughs> so I ordered this whole kit, right? And a week before the event, I tested out. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit! 
I want to go. I don't want to go into details, but the fucking thing doesn't work. It's an external. It's like a condom, right? So you put it on. It's got this valve. It's got this tube. The whole thing, and uh, fucking thing. I put it on. It doesn't want to fucking come off. It's got. It's got glue at the end when you roll all the way back. It's got fucking glue on this condom, right? <laughs> and the fucking thing doesn't want to come off. I'm like, holy shit! I had to call my wife and like, we gotta go to the hospital. This fucking thing doesn't come <laughs> off. I fucking got it off. You know? <laughs> I finally got it off. So I'm like. Fuck the catheter. I can't do that. I'm just going to piss in my pants while I'm riding. So, so six, four, four hours in, like the second stop, after the second fuel stop, I'm drinking all this, getting hydrated, getting hydrated, and I'm not pissing. Suddenly I have to piss. All right, no big deal. I stood up on the bike. I kind of slowed down, and, and I pissed. And, and the piss goes down my left leg into my, into my boots. Yeah. I'm like, all right, it'll dry up. 10 minutes later, I had to piss again. I'm like, fuck. So 10 minutes later, I had to piss again to the point where now I had a fucking puddle of piss in my left boot <laughs> and I was throwing it throughout my helmet. So I come in through, <laughs> I come in through time and scoring and Louis standing there and he's going one lap to go, one lap to go. I'm like, no, pit now, pit now. And he thinks something's wrong with the bike. Like maybe I crashed or something. I need to go in and change my pants and change my socks and my boots because I was going to throw up in my helmet because it was so fucking disgusting. You know? So I went to the, I, I'm riding as a 10 mile an hour speed limit in the pit range, in the pit, pit area. I'm pumping 10 miles an hour. Here's Louie. He's fucking running to get, beat me to go get the tools ready because he doesn't know what the fuck is wrong with the bike. And I finally get there. He's like, what happened? I'm like, I need loose. Now he's starting to take my pants. I'm like, don't touch anything. It's fucking piss. Don't touch anything. It's piss. <laughs> so I fucking sat there and I, and I had to change. Get And so all, all the time I, I saved pissing in my pants, I lost changing the pants in my boots. Ah. <laughs> so the next year, I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop and piss like a real man. You know, yeah. I would pull over. Go to find a tree and piss and, and all that. But anyway, well, that was the experience of that, uh, of racing that. But we didn't, we didn't win. Uh, we ended up coming in fourth place. Uh, but that was uh, 22 hours and 70 minutes on a bike. It was a, good, it was a very good experience. That was, a, wow. that was the first one. It was 2014. And this year, it got canceled because of the COVID, unfortunately. Man, you've lived an exciting life, bro. Yeah, it was, it's, a, it's an exciting life for sure, yeah. I mean, I love the I love the road racing. I love the drag racing. Uh, I love the dirt bike and the mountain bike because uh, that's a little bit more physical, yeah. and there's a lot of training involved, you know. And and I like I like to push, and I like to, uh, you know, it it's, it can get a little dangerous. Yeah. I've I've broken a lot of bones on a dirt bike. I have a lot of hardware on me now from crashes and stuff, but that's part of the game, yeah. you know. Man, dude, this, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, man. <laughs> it's such oh, great it's been, stories. It's two and a half hours. I, I love it, man. I love it. Uh, we have dedicated yeah. listeners, so they they listen all the way to the end. Oh, my so, God. That's awesome. Thank you so much for this. I mean, to all the listeners, uh, anybody that wants to, you know, kind of get an idea of how it was uh, back in the you know late 90s and the 2000s with the explosion of the import plus the Fast and Furious, you know, the first one and then the second one. Uh, but you bring on, you know, I'm sure a lot of the other guys have a lot of stories, but, uh, you know, the shenanigans that went on, uh, you know, after racing was over, 
at the restaurants and hotels with all the racing and and uh we have had great stories with uh you know with with all the teams uh um you know just just the shit that happened behind the scenes yeah you know, it was it was a lot of fun fun days a lot of good memories definitely man and it wasn't just about the racing and the winning and the losing it was a lot of the fun that went on <clears throat> after racing yeah you know I, I i'm on a mission now i definitely want to talk to some of the ogs for sure now before yeah. we get out of here there's probably going to be a lot of drag racers current drag racers listening now uh what are some tips that you can give them to uh help further their career in drag racing um that's that's a, uh, that's a very good question it's as far as sponsorships, uh, the presentation, whether it's a PowerPoint, the package, the personal presentation uh, with, with the sponsors, is uh, don't be afraid to ask for a lot of money. Don't shortchange the program. You have to make them understand why you know the importance of being a partner on the team, but don't don't be afraid of making the program expensive because it costs money. And you know sponsors uh, sponsors are the, when I, the way I learned it. You know what I realized back then. Uh, sponsors are more attracted to teams who are willing to to spend money even if it comes you know even if it's coming from the partner's money but putting the money into the team to promote the brand so that that's a big thing of is promoting the brand and when you promote the brand that's other one thing i did when we brought circus city in is how do we take circuit street glow products and put it in circus city shelves yeah you know that was it wasn't just a sticker on the race car and on the shirt it was putting street glow products on Circus City shelves, electronics. And so when you are working with a marketing uh, brand, there's always this business-to-business cross-marketing that is very beneficial, and that's how you expand the program. That's how you bring in more sponsors. As far as you know, racetrack, it is very important to put together a very uh, quality team, and you have the, the owner of the team has to take very, very good care of the of the team, of the teammates. Very good care. Financially in every single way. Because I'm not a mechanic and I will my car would have never run in any number without without their without the team, without their help. Gotcha. Without you know I had I had a dream, I had a vision, but they fulfilled it and it wasn't me. So a, a, a strong team and being a small part of a st- strong team is 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 the is a is a big factor in becoming a very successful racing team of any caliber drag racing or or or, or, or uh, road racing um, so but that's that's a there's a lot of, a lot of things in between that yeah. but that's pretty much in a nutshell is 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 learning to work with the marketing department of a brand and also using the whole team as a package for the brand 
But the team has to be together, has to be compensated well, has to be taken care of very well. Uh, that's one way to avoid, you know, losing quality crews because a quality crew member can easily be picked up by another team. Yeah. And, you know, you have to create a good bond. We had a great bond that we developed. Uh, it was partly because of our chemistry and as well as financially, um, the, t the team was taken care of. Got it, man. You know, you've dropped so many gems in this podcast, man. I, I really, really appreciate it. There's so much benefit into talking to somebody like yourself who was around in those heydays and who thrived. Yeah. And really, I, I feel like I haven't said much, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I, sincerely, I, I really feel like I'm going to go, I'm going to hang up now. I'm going to say, oh, shit, I forgot to talk about that. I forgot to talk about that. I forgot. I mean, there's, there's so much more, but unfortunately well hopefully uh after all this covid stuff goes down we're in the east coast all the time man maybe we could do one of these in person next time oh my god that would be that would be uh, an honor definitely man hey, it was an honor to sit with you man i really really appreciate your insight and uh on everything and um yeah let's let's definitely keep in touch man if there's anything that yeah. we could ever help out with uh i'm i'm very excited to share your story for sure yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And if there's anything I can do for the sport, um, uh, with whatever little I can do, I'll be more than uh, whatever I can do. I love the sport. I love the, the culture. Definitely. You know? The sport is, you know, you have many types of racing sport. Like I said, mountain biking, dirt biking, road course. But the, the culture of import racing is, uh, uh, is, is unique. And it's, uh, it's very, I'm, I'm very grateful to, be a, to, become, to have been a part of it. And I feel, I still feel a part of it. And uh, with social media a year, and, you know, about, about a year and a half ago or so, uh, I became more involved again. And so I'm, I'm very happy about that. And, uh, um, but, you know, I, I love to, I would love to see the, the sport go back to where it used to be. Yeah. You know, likewise, man, that's, that's one of my goals. You know, you can always complain about things or you could do your part to, to try to help that goal come to life man and that's what i i definitely want to do with this so really really appreciate you sharing your time and sharing your experiences so now Thank people you. listening um that want to know more about you where can they uh follow along your life at well i mean the only thing i have as far as uh, social media is uh, instagram um uh and um uh 618 toro uh and I don't have Facebook. Perfect. And I don't have YouTube. So okay. uh, that's, Instagram is the only way to follow along. I, I post a lot of you know, older pictures and uh, I, I get good comments on. I get good feedbacks and, uh, you know, with, with, with the older stuff. And I have a lot of stuff that I still am going to post uh, that I have like videos up that I have to convert to digital. Yeah. I can and then put it in an Instagram format and so I can post them and uh, so yeah that's the only way right now and uh, and through good people like you for sure thank you so much man you said six one eight Toro is the Instagram right yes okay we'll have it listed below guys is it let me see double check uh, either way we'll have it listed and we'll we'll tag you in everything once it comes out make sure you guys follow Ara and uh um, yeah, perfect you know what i'm gonna need i'm gonna need a picture of uh of you with uh the warren warren johnson i want to see that picture oh i have in the I hot rod magazine like this and, and there's a picture where you know 
the photographer told us like to get like face to face. And so I'm like face to face like this and I'm trash talking the shit out of him, you know? I'm trash talking like this and, and I'm trash talking, I'm like, and, and I don't remember word for word what I was saying, but I know for sure I was trash. And you can see in his face a little bit, he was starting to be a little bit annoyed, yeah. but I didn't care, you know? But there's a picture like that. You can see, I'll, 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 I'll send you the picture. Okay, perfect. <laughs> There's a picture of that. It's a really cool picture. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for your time, man. I really, really appreciate thank you. it. Thank you very, very, very much. I really appreciate this. Thank you for your time. Of course. And uh, thank you guys all for listening. Um, I know you enjoyed that one right there. Hopefully, you guys take some of those gems and implement them into your life and into your uh, race program. So I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, big shout out to our sponsors, Heel Toe Automotive. Been around since 2002, supplying you guys with your Honda parts. Make sure you guys listen to the commercial and you know how to get hooked up. And then a big shout out to Rywire. Um, make sure you guys check them out, rywire.com or on Instagram at rywire underscore motorsport underscore electronics. And uh, lastly, Action Clutch, man. Uh, Clutch is made uh, in Los Angeles and can hold up to 1,200 horsepower. That's an old, that's an action. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, they've been a, they've been around for a while. I think it's actually a family business as well because we do business with the son. But, yeah, they've been in L.A. for a, a long, I think even since the 70s, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, is there is there a package yellow like their box? Oh, it's red. It's red now. Okay. Yeah. But I I it just rang a bell. Yeah. I, I, I we didn't use their clutch, but I, I remember I remember that brand. I love it, man. Hell yeah. yeah. Shout out to Action Clutch, man. Make sure you guys check them out. Actionclutch.com or on Instagram at Action Clutch. And uh thank you guys for listening, man. This is Downtime with Downstar episode two oh one. And we're out of here. Peace.